Did you watch the Yankees last night? I didn't. I didn't. I was busy last night. My daughter's sick, so I was taking care of her. Oh, no, that's terrible. Yeah, just a little bit of the cough. Kind of um, kind of borderline croup kind of thing. So She's three, so that happens, I guess, around that age. Yeah, that's sort of like when they, they get adventurous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Start right? touching a lot of things, putting a lot of things in their mouth. And, What's yeah. this? Well, and and you know, it's like the like they're always putting things in their mouth, but it's like at three they can like find amazing new places <laughs> to go to put things in their mouth. Right, exactly, you know? exactly. They have uh, they're ambulatory and they can climb now, and um, yeah, exactly. It's they're like they curious. first start moving around, and you can just sort of like you know clean up a room and have a room where everything within reach is reasonably clean, and then you know. That's good. And then by right. the time they're three, they can get anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Either you go full clean room where it's just bare walls to the ceiling or <laughs> you just kind of have to roll with the punches. Oh, man. So it's weird. I feel like there's a weird combination. August is always a weird time in every industry, but it in tech in particular, it's, it's always slow in some ways. But I feel like this year it's it's interesting in a couple of ways. Mm hmm. Um, well, and one, and I just saw it now, this is right up. I'm sure you saw the article, uh, cause I saw it on TechCrunch. um, is that, uh, it's all the drama at Twitter more or less. Oh, and, right. Uh, as we record today, August 7th, um, the news today is that Chris Saka, um, who, what do they call him? Outsp outspoken investor. Yeah. I, I, that's, a, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, uh, I think it is. I think it's a fair characterization. I doubt he'd. He'd uh, balk too much of that. I don't know. I don't want to put words into his mouth, but he right. seems to have no qualms in in um, kind of saying what he believes is the right thing to do there. I would also say it would be fair to describe him as influential investor Chris Saka. Uh, I you know uh, he he's sort of like, <laughs> maybe like our uh, uh, in tech he's sort of like the nice guy version of uh, 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 I can. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say Carl Icahn. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean Icahn. Yeah, Icahn is sort of a bulldozer. Um, I think I think Saka tries to talk to the right people and say, "Look, these are the things," and connect the right people that are whatever. I mean, you notice that this is the first time he's really kind of come out really. I mean, obviously, he's said a lot about Twitter product and he's written medium posts about Twitter product and all that stuff. That he thinks that there are certain things they need to do with their product, which is fine. You know, everybody has opinions, um, and you know he's known the product for a long time. But uh, this is the first time he's come out and explicitly said, like, look, you guys should hire Jack for the CEO spot. And uh, I think he does work a lot behind the scenes to kind of connect the dots and try to um, get the right things to happen with Twitter because he really cares about it. But um, this is the first time he's actually kind of come out and said in public on Twitter, uh, hey, you guys should hire Jack. Uh, and, you know, it, it seems like there's... It, it, the whole Twitter CEO thing is such a soap opera. I mean, you really could not write a more soap opera style story because like a real soap opera, the characters don't go away. Like they've gone through. They've, <laughs> That's, I like that. Right. They've gone yeah, they through a bunch of CEOs and everybody who has ever been the Twitter CEO remains on the board. <laughs> right yeah exactly and they they come back from the, like oh no they weren't dead they were in the basement like strapped to a gurney and you know a doctor was experimenting on them and now you know your cousin is back and he's in love with you or whatever yeah 
so you've always got these, you know, uh, former co-founders and CEOs on the board looking over your shoulder. I mean, even um, with Dick Costello, it, you know, that he's, you know, he's, he's, I guess he is no longer the CEO, but he's, you know, <laughs> you go right to the board. Yeah, he's on the board. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I think that Twitter has a unique history in that it, a lot of the people that were really invested in it were not, they were not brought on because they were business people. Because there's this sort of, there's this, this two-fold way of thinking about leadership in the Valley. And depending on the investor, depending on the stage of the company, and a lot of other things, you get varying opinions about what's the right thing to do as far as leadership goes. But there's a huge uh, sort of cadre of people in the Valley that follow and, and really closely adhere to this technical founder leadership mentality, right? Like yeah. the person that came up with the idea and maybe even wrote some code on the original concept uh, or even crafted the first first MVP you know, product is the person that should lead the company because they know it the best. They know the, the underlying um, sort of purpose that they saw behind it and they can guide that purpose through whatever permutations may come if they're in that leadership position. Whereas outside the Valley uh, and even in the Valley, there's, there's some folks who are kind of coming around to this type of mentality, but outside the Valley, you often see somebody being brought in purely because they're a good CEO. Like they have no idea what the technical aspects of the product entail. Maybe even at first they may not even use it uh, they may, may barely know that it exists tangentially until the CEO search starts happening or whatever. But then they get brought in because they're a good CEO. It's like a good cleanup hitter. You know, you don't bring them in for their fielding um, prowess necessarily, but you're going to bring them in to, to bat at the end of the order or, or in the middle of the order to, to bring, bring them back to home base. And that's their skill. They don't have the other skills. Eric Schmidt might be a canonical example of that in terms of you know why did why did Google bring him in mm-hmm. you know for when they did you know that 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 what was Eric Schmidt's talent that you know I think bottom line that he was seen as being a good CEO mm-hmm. and that that's what Google at the time needed and you know it, it's hard to if that's if you want to take that that stance it's hard to argue against that whatever you think of you know eric schmidt and you know google they certainly have been were very successful under him and it seems to have worked well for them Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that larry you know obviously taking the job back over a lot of people saw that as a sort of reclamation and resurrection of uh, some google missions because you you'll notice that a lot of the experimental programs you know really took on a new life and and were spun up after that happened um i think that there is something to be said for both. You know, I think that getting your financial underpinnings in order and your business plans aligned with the, th- the stuff that's going to help you grow and spend money in the long run is a huge thing. Like with Google, there's essentially two ways to think about it. You think about Google in the terms of way it makes money, which is actually quite boring. Well, boring to me, but not to some, you know, some ad tech people might take offense and be like, no, they're doing all kinds of cool stuff. And that's fine. But it's fairly straightforward. Um, the way they make money is ads. But the way they spend their money is fascinating. It's endlessly fascinating to me. And so uh, that that is like kind of the the dual role that those two CEOs played, I think. Yeah, and don't and I think the other factor there though is that there was never any kind of drama or contention 
between or see at least from the outside it certainly didn't seem like there was between Larry and Sergey and Eric Schmidt that it was a triumvirate you know that they were seen as three guys who led the company um and you know the fact that they brought in a CEO didn't really steer the company away from what it was founded to do you yeah. know and that those guys were still there and were obviously heavily influential throughout the whole period where Eric Schmidt was the CEO and obviously even more influential now that uh, Larry is the CEO. But, you know, so and I think you could see Google sort of almost like both sides of the argument that they did well by bringing in a CEO, but that they also did well by keeping the founders there in a, you know, significant leadership positions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and Twitter doesn't, doesn't necessarily have that history it has this kind of weird history where they bring people in there's you know there's sort of uh, internal contentions and and fights about who really should be in charge regardless of who actually holds the ceo spot well there's even contention at twitter over who the actual founder is you know is it was it jack dorsey who or evan williams you know and i you know what's his name nick uh, um Bilton. What's his name? Bilton wrote a whole book, you know, uh, mm -hmm. about the trying to settle that argument. Right. And I think that this is a good tie in to that whole, you know, what do you do? Who do you bring in to run a company thing like the founder, the technical founder or, or person knows how to run the business? And I think that there's something there's an alignment there because part of Bilton's book and. This is very. This is a good thing that he pointed out that I think more people should understand about the valley is that there's this myth of the sole creator, right? Of the the mythical creator, and that's not unique to the valley. I think that a lot of companies have had this history, especially in America, where we kind of value this sort of like entrepreneurial spirit and the the I found I made this thing with my hands kind of thing, and so you get this creator myth spun up where the story becomes less and less complex over time until eventually it's this guy made this thing. Mm -hmm. But in reality, if you burrow down to the roots of the thing, it's these 12 people made this thing in varying ways. This person was an influencer. This person said no to the very thing that, that would have made it great and you know whatever, right? You can, you can burrow down to all the little teeny decisions that were made in the origin. But it's very, very rare to actually have a sole creator myth pan out if you burrow down to the origins of most of these companies. And I think Twitter is one of those things where you had people, it was such a nebulous start because it was a side project of another company, which was itself kind of flailing and deciding what it wanted to do and, and all this stuff. And then you had, on top of that, you have egos and you have people who are obviously incredibly talented, but also eloquent and, you know, have a passion for it. And it wasn't just a, oh, who made it so who gets the equity? It was who made it so who gets to own the creator myth. You know, and I think that's almost as important as any other currency in Silicon Valley um, because yeah. it funds future ventures and your ability to get funding for future companies and that sort of thing. So I think that Jack kind of came out the winner there for a time, although people have acknowledged, you know, Ev's efforts more and more as time goes on. Uh, and of course, there are plenty of people. I mean, people forget, you know, costola has been there 10 years. Yeah. You know, <laughs> this is not a guy who kind of came out of nowhere. And I think that there is a big difference between, I think he got short shrift a lot. And I think he was kind of handed 
a bag of bones and asked to do things that weren't necessarily possible. Um, I, I'm not claiming insider knowledge on any of this. I just, you know, observation and discussion with people and all this stuff. Uh, over time, it seems like, he, you know, nobody ever told me, oh, Dick is a jerk or Dick Asola doesn't know what he's doing. Like, n I never, ever heard that in my history of reporting on Twitter. And it was, you know, oh, the product is all over the place and they can't decide what to do and this and that, the other thing. Which yeah. that, there's a you know, variety of things that could be a reason for that. But, yeah. I always come back to, I, I just really think that there's a, a history, and it's natural. I don't even know how it could be avoided. But that with investors, when some company has unbelievable success, I, I mean, just, you know, like if you got in, you know, boom, that you've, you know, the stock explodes and you make tons of money. Um, and the company starts, you know, making enormous profits and it's, you know, hurrahs all around that investors see, want to look for somebody else and say, you should do what they did. And, you know, I always, you know, Apple's a, a company that I, you know, am intimately familiar with. And that to me was 20 years ago, this whole argument of you got to stop, you got to get out of the hardware game. You're a software company. You should license your OS. Um, because, you know, which was more or less you should just do what Microsoft does because Microsoft was a, a extraordinarily successful. A paragon of virtue at that time. Right. And it was too late. At, at a certain point, from an investor standpoint, it was too late to make lots of money on Microsoft because they'd already gotten huge. So why not, you know, get into Apple and have Apple do what they did? It, even though that doesn't make any sense. It would not make any sense for... You know, doing what these people were saying wouldn't actually lead to the result of Apple having become mm -hmm. a Microsoft-style uh, success. Uh, and in fact, when they dipped their toes in it, it was a disaster with the cloning and, and right. licensing and stuff like that. Uh, it made a, a bad situation worse. Um, There's but that's what they wanted to do. And to me, that's... To, anyway, where I'm going with that is to me, Twitter is Apple and Facebook is Microsoft in that argument. Oh, today. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely think you're right there. I mean, I think there's plenty of people that are that are looking at, and both companies have made feints towards duplicating and or cloning certain features of each other. And for the most part, those don't pan out well, because they no. don't align, you know, with the company, the, the core of what the company is. Let me, um, I'll text you this, you can, you can pull it up. But there's this Dilbert cartoon that, um, that, <coughs> excuse me, I, I got a little bit of a cough, I apologize. But um, that I found tweeted into my feed that it was so so germane to this. Um, it's from 2012, but the first first panel, it's the boss. You got Dilbert and the dog and the boss, right? And the dog is the consultant. And the boss says, I hired a management consultant to teach us something. He calls backwards causation. And Dilbert's sitting there looking at him. And the second panel, the dog, who's the consultant always, says, I studied the most successful companies. If you imitate them, You'll feel as you as if you have a strategy, and he's all number one. Sponsor a golf tournament so your CEO can meet celebrities, <laughs> and the boss is all profits. Here we come, and and that like it, yeah, it's it's just a funny aside, but it really is so true. You get a lot of these things where people go, "This was successful, so you should imitate this," and they don't ask, you know, why was it successful or yeah. why was it successful in that particular area? And I think it, that's it, a big thing. It's a good comic. The third the third panel is obviously the joke, and it is kind of funny. But it's the second panel that sets up the joke. That's actually sort of the insight into the the 
the bad strategy of a lot of companies, right? Because it's true. That's it's the it's funny because it's true. If you imitate them, you'll feel as if you have a strategy, right? It's much and, easier than doing the hard thinking about what the soul of your company is and how to expand that you know goal without giving up that soul. And that's yeah. a much much more difficult conversation to have than you know this this was really cool. Why don't we tr- test that out? A, B, test it, see if it works. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, we'll just try something some other company did. You know? This that this to me is the bad hand that Dick Costello was dealt when he took over. It was that he was coming into a world where Facebook was heading towards a an IPO. Their IPO was successful. Um, they did a, have done a tremendous job. This is Facebook. Tremendous job pivoting to go from being a web company to a mobile company uh including not just with usage including making money there i think they're and you you probably know i almost certain though i just read that they now make more money on mobile than they do from desktop i believe so yes don't quote me but i believe so if not it's a huge amount and they turned it around like overnight in the trend but really quickly you know if if they haven't quite passed it yet the trend lines are clear that it's it either just happened that early you know like in the last quarter or it's going to happen the mm-hmm. trend the trend line is absolutely set that they're going to make more money on mobile which is exactly makes sense because people are using mobile more so it makes sense so that's they've done great and they have this unbelievable size of users you know they've got i don't know over a billion active users around the world and it's growing 65 percent, by the way 65 percent or 66 percent of their total revenue from mobile right so it's as of last year so right and it's only and it's and it's gonna keep going i think i think it's gonna go up to 70 75 80 um you know unbelievable user base lots of profits it's not even you know like oh but you know they're Hopefully, you know, they've got all the users and they've got all the revenue. Eventually, they'll make a profit. No, they've already got the profit. It's a great business. Um, and Twitter came of age in the shadow of Facebook. And, and, you know, everybody made out with Facebook. And then Twitter is sort of like Facebook in a general sense. It's a social network, right? It's, you know. It, yeah, one could argue that it's actually a different thing. Oh, I think you definitely but, could. But, but yeah, you could also, that, it falls in that bucket. You know, it's certainly more similar than you know. It, it, you could say it's apples to oranges, but it's it's not like comparing apples to you know a paintbrush. You know, right. it's they're clearly <laughs> right. you know they're in the same section of the grocery store, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, and so therefore it was well, you Twitter should be as successful measured in those ways. You know, stock price, revenue profits, users, active users as Facebook. And I and I think the fundamental truth is that Facebook, the nature of Facebook is more compelling to more people, just regular people, than Twitter. I think Twitter is a phenomenal idea. I I honestly to me it has changed my life. I I honestly cannot can't even imagine I, I it's hard for me to remember, you know, what it was like before Twitter. And to me it's always very funny to think about it because it it Twitter and the iPhone more or less came out around the same time. Like I signed up for Twitter in late 2006 and really kind of, you know, dug into it throughout 2007, which was the year the iPhone came out. And so it's, you know, my life pre 2007, I remember it, but it seems it <laughs> you don't seems, have a log of it for sure, right? <laughs> it seems unimaginable, though. It really yeah. does. Even just how I did during Fireball seems very strange to me because an enormous 
part of writing during Fireball to me is what I do on my iPhone. And a lot of what I do on my iPhone is Twitter in terms of just finding links and getting feedback and, and stuff like that. Um, I think it's a tremendous product. I just don't think, I think fundamentally though, it's not as compelling to the mass market as Facebook. And yet the demand was there from investors for it to be. And it, they've twisted and contorted it to sort of make it as Facebooky as they can while still being true to what Twitter is. And it, to me, it's just, they've just perverted what, what Twitter should be. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple ways to look at that. I, I understand that argument and I agree with it for the most part, but I think that there are ways to, to look at Twitter as a product that, that actually allows you to serve both of those concepts, serve the Twitter concept, which is sort of a, a real time pillar of the internet. You know, you don't, you don't delete Twitter from the internet. Now, if Twitter today, if like ever the company disappeared, just some massive fold, like it turns out there was a Ponzi scheme and everybody in it is broke and there's no money anywhere and whatever, right? And and every share is worth one cent and, and everybody cashes out and it, whatever, you know, there's the building's empty tomorrow. Something else would fill that void, right? It is something we did not understand we needed out of the internet until it existed. And now that we know that it exists, it's impossible to do without. So it's it's sort of one of those, um, you know, like, uh, Schrodinger's cat things, right? Like if you didn't ever saw Twitter in the box, would you care that you didn't have Twitter? Maybe, maybe not, probably not, right? Mm -hmm. But now that you know it exists, there's absolutely no way that the internet exists without that because that's it's a it's a fundamental underpinning of the way the internet works now. Not necessarily that every user of the internet uses it, obviously not, because if so, they wouldn't have the problems that they're having. But that real-time feed influences the core internet users that drive the experience for so many other people, like news gatherers and news makers and people that understand the way that the internet works and the way that the world works in ways that they need to broadcast or feel that they want to broadcast. I mean, if you look at like the Black Lives Matter movement and like D. Ray McKesson and like these and these folks that are that are on the ground in these various cities. And and when those body cam videos come out and they get they get splashed all over Twitter and get shared and then shared out to news sites, I mean those movements would lack a. I mean, not that they wouldn't exist. You know, human beings are resilient, but it they would definitely not have the amplification that they do. And the Twitter nature, is you know the, the nature the of Twitter, Twitter enables that, right? It, right. It is right. a tremendous news service. It's different. Right. Like what Twitter does that's unique is just different and unique, and it just measures differently than Facebook. And it might end up being, and I, th I honestly think this is true, it might end up being less profitable than Facebook. But that doesn't mean, this is, this is what I'm getting at, it doesn't mean that Twitter isn't popular and can't be profitable. Just not profitable up to expect unreasonable expectations that have been set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think you're right a, in that for sure. I, I don't think that they're ever going to reach Facebook scale. Or, or if they do, it'll be in a, in a way we don't even see yet. Yeah, there was a... Um, it's oh my god! It's I just brought it up, but it's covered by a get Adobe Flash Player thing here, <laughs> Forbes, uh, which we can get to soon. But anyway, it was a thing from last December where Evan Williams was asked on stage about Instagram having more active users uh, 
than mm-hmm. Twitter. And he said, I don't give a shit if Instagram has more users. And then mm-hmm. went on, you know, but that obviously was got the headlines. But um, yeah, I think there was some context missing there. But overall, I think the sentiment is kind of accurate. That's, that's what they need to feel. Here, here's right? I'll quote. I'll quote Evan Williams. It's not too long. Yeah. Here's what he said. It's a question of breadth versus depth. Why is users the only thing we talk about? The crazy thing, Facebook has done an amazing job of establishing that as the metric for Wall Street. No one ever talks about what is a monthly active user. I believe it's the case that if you use Facebook Connect, if you use an app that you logged into with Facebook Connect, you're considered a Facebook user, whether or not you ever launched the Facebook app or went to facebook.com. So what does that mean? It's become so abstract to be meaningless. Something you did caused some data in their servers to be recorded for the month. So I think we're on the wrong path. Uh, if you think, and I think what he means by that is we're, we as an industry are on the wrong path about measuring monthly active users as this thing. Um, Back to Evan Williams' quote, if you think about the impact Twitter has on the world versus Instagram, it's pretty significant. It's at least apples to oranges. Twitter is what we wanted it to be. It's this real-time information network where everything in the world that happens on Twitter, important stuff breaks on Twitter, and world leaders have conversations on Twitter. If that's happening, I frankly don't give a shit if Instagram has more people looking at pretty pictures. Mm -hmm. End quote. And that, to me, is a very compelling argument, and I hope that that you know, the fact that Evan Williams is still on the board and, you know, has obviously has some influence that it's, you know, my big fear about Twitter is that they're going to bring in somebody who is going to destroy what Twitter is good for in a, a, a vain attempt to uh, emulate Facebook. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a solution um, and I'm no, you know, I'm just a dude who writes about things on the internet. Right. So this is easy for me to say and, and hard for anybody else to do. But I think that there is a solution. That solution is to treat logged in Twitter and logged out Twitter as two separate products. And I mm. think that they are starting to do that a little bit. Um, they've launched some things that, that are fainting at that. But I also feel that they haven't had a unified product strategy that they've been able to stick to for longer than a couple of quarters in, in quite some time. So it's going to take a while to see if this pans out. And whoever they bring in for leadership is going to need to feel the same way. It's like bringing in a new librarian, right? And that new librarian is going to need to feel the same way about the way the catalog works. Otherwise, we're going to end up with a mess again. But logged in Twitter is a, a place for creators. It's a place for people that, that make and do and see and speak. And logged out Twitter is for consumers. It's, for, it's a place where people like to consume and see the things that people make and, and take in the things that people say and hopefully grow smarter or grow more enlightened or just be entertained or whatever. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's it's Drake laying down a diss track against Meek Mill and tweeting it out or whether it's, you know, the Iran deal and that's breaking. And in either one, there you know, there's bliss there's bliss in either one. And that I think that ability to treat them as different things, different entities and hold those two ideas in their hand at the same time and service those two audiences is going to be key to whether or not they make it a success at scale, at a large, large scale. Do you, um, do, I'm, I'm sure that you do, but I'm guessing a lot of people who listen don't, but do you follow Magic Rex? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Magic Rex, for anybody who doesn't know, it's the the account is at... I actually broke the story about it existing, by the way. Oh, there you go. Congratulations. <laughs> All right. <I've> been... <laughs> Then you probably do know about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Magic Rex, or then you tell me what Magic Rex is. The user account is M A G I C K 
capital R E C S, like as in Rex, like recommendations, R E C S. Right. right. So Magic Rex was the long story short. Magic Rex was an experiment done by the experimental division at Twitter. It's kind of a handful of people that do, you know, some of them have left since, and I think it still exists, but they do experiments with Twitter data. Uh, and some of that existed to sort of surface good content. They're like, hey, how would we tell somebody if there's somebody worth following? And, you know, you could say, oh, well, this person just gained a bunch of followers, but that doesn't tell the whole story. You know, they need to be important to you personally. Why else would you want to follow them? So they came up with this idea to, to create a Twitter account at, at first uh, as an experiment that Twitter account would then funnel in the, the context of your followers, who you followed, and it says, oh, if John, Sally, and Jane in your network followed this person, you might want to follow them too. So it sends you a DM, and it says, hey, John, Sally, and Jane just followed this person, along with you know nine other people. Um, so you might want to follow them, and you can follow them. You could click on the account. I often go in there and like, who, you know, why did they follow this person? And you're like, oh, they just got hired by this publication, right? That makes sense. Um, and then they also ran, started running an experiment um, in the same manner uh, on tweets. So if somebody tweeted something that was favorited by a bunch of people in your network, people you follow or people you interact with regularly, it would then surface that tweet for you. Say, look, seven people you know favorited this tweet. It's probably something you want to look at. So that was the genesis of the experiment. I, I find it to be extraordinarily uh, successful. So I follow. I get DMs from the Magic Rex account, uh, and I'm just checking right here. It looks like I got ten in the last month. So I, mm -hmm. it certainly doesn't badger me. It looks, right. you know, I, I, good rate. At least good rate. Yeah. In the last month, I've gotten one every three days, um, and they're all good. It's there's a bunch of them this month have been about favorited tweets, and, mm -hmm. and most of them, you know, sometimes they're ones that I've actually seen. Um, or it's about a thing that I know about, but most of them weren't, and they were all worth looking at, like remarkably useful for some kind of AI bot in terms of that. And like you said, there's a bunch that are like somebody, some new account is just followed by, you know, somebody. Um, and it's also remarkable to me how quickly some of them. Um, are. Right. I actually warn my writers if we hire somebody not to follow them immediately. So that I can announce that writer, because if all of my writers follow them, all all journalism is it's a uniquely navel gazing and insular industry, right. especially on Twitter. So all journalists follow each other, and we all talk to each other, and that sometimes distorts what we think is important. But that's a whole nother story. Um, but if they all follow this writer all at once, bam, then they um, it pops a magic wreck on all my competitors, and they'll know that I hired them before I'm ready to announce. So yeah. I actually tell them not to follow them. The the magic here's one for uh, the at Edge TV account. Now that's a new like sort of I, I actually haven't looked at it yet, but it's from the Onion video right. group. It's it's I think it's like it's hilarious actually. Fake parody Vice mm -hmm. sort of. Yeah, it's it, a parody you know. Vice. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, hipster type independent journalists on, you know, in around the world in dangerous situations, but it's a parody. Uh, but I got a couple of days ago, I got a edged at edge TV was just followed by Josh centers 11 seconds ago and at Matt and uh Jessica Misner. Mm -hmm. uh, but 11 seconds after Josh centers followed them, the magic Rex account sent me a DM and said, Hey, this, you know, 
You Josh. should definitely pay attention to this account. Right. This guy yeah. from, you know, the guy who's the editor at uh, Tidbits now and Matt Honan and uh, Jessica Misner. So three media people who I follow all followed it. You, you know, you might want to know. And I did. I followed it. It was right. it was worth it. The thing that I'm getting at, though, is that the the data that makes Magic Rex work, the 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 thinking and the whatever information they have, if they could show me ads at about the same pace, show mm-hmm. me 10 of them a month but have them be as interesting to me as as these are right. that's gold that is absolute positive gold like they they're obviously finding things that i think are interesting and i think that the i think that their potential is clearly there that they could sell me things that i would be interested in well you know the ads the, <laughs> the thing about twitter ads is that they're actually really good already like they a lot of people don't know this because the the company itself is maligned on the whole because of its lack of user growth, although you know, as we already you already touched on, that those metrics can be argued against, right? Strongly, um, you know, the daily active users and monthly active users and everything. But they're maligned because those metrics have been established and they are what they are. But their ads and monetization departments actually outperform the company significantly. And I mean, use outperform very loosely there, but they perform in an outsized manner considering how many users they have. And so if they actually were able to solve the user growth problem or find a different way to count those users, people that viewed embedded tweets, for instance, included in monthly active users, that sort of thing, if they were able to fix that for the market, I think it it would actually go insane because the, the Twitter ads department, which is the revenue department, which is led by Adam Bain, who is, by the way, one of the front runners for CEO, hmm. is is actually really, really well performing. And that the ads there are served up with intelligence. However, I agree with you that they could be much, much smarter. If I got an ad that I know was personalized like Magic Rex, I feel it would be even more effective. Um, but you know, I'm no, I'm no smarty in the ads department. I, I agree with you though, that that could be a good concept. The potential is clearly there. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, magic Rex actually just real briefly, magic Rex was actually integrated into the main Twitter product. Like it was absorbed into the main product as of late 2013, I think sometime. Um, and so the, if you don't have magic Rex, if you've never heard of the account, but you've gotten a notification that says, Hey, you should, you know, this person was just followed or, you know, you should look at this tweet. That's built off of that Magic Rex experiment. They sort of folded it in. But I, of course, still follow the account, and, and I get the DM directly. I actually like it that way better than a notification. Yeah. But, tip, of the, yeah. tip of the day for those of you who haven't tried it, especially I would I think, because like, uh, I'm guessing a lot of people who listen to the show are like me and don't really, don't really even know what the main Twitter experience is like because we all use TweetBot right. or, or Twitterific. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I nothing like that would surface for me if I weren't following the Magic Rex account. Right, like I, exactly. Uh, Platform agnostic, which is when Twitter's at its best. But you know, that's another discussion too. Yeah. Uh, anyway, speaking of ads, uh, let's thank uh, the first sponsor of the week, and it's a longtime friend of the show, back sponsoring the show again, uh, Linda dot com, L Y N D A dot com. Linda dot com is in a nut. Uh, online learning. You go there and you can learn uh, all sorts of creative stuff. Uh, 3,000 courses, over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, uh, visual design, user interface design, graphic design, 
and business, business stuff too, anything, just about anything you can learn in the modern world, lynda.com has courses on it. Uh, it. Just Even just software training, Excel, WordPress, Photoshop, all of their courses are taught by experts and new courses are added to the site every week. And I cannot emphasize how true this is. Like when they've been sponsoring before and I go and check it out, the new stuff that they add every week is just unbelievable. Uh, whether you want to set new financial goals, uh, whether you want to further your career, whether you want to start a new career, just learn a new skill for a hobby. Lynda.com is an absolutely tremendous way to learn to do this. Now, here's the thing. You can sign up for a free 10-day trial by visiting lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com slash The Talk Show, and you will get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com to access to view the tutorials. Um, uh, you could do it on tablets. You could do it on the desktop web browser. Uh, use your iPhone, Android, whatever. You got 10 days and you could just view it all, consume as much as you can in the 10-day trial. That's how convinced they are that if you just get started and give them a shot and do it for free, that you are going to sign up. Uh, really can't emphasize how great this is. Uh, really, really great stuff. I've I've learned a lot. I did the Lightroom one, uh, and it's like I it changed me from being somebody like a trained monkey using Lightroom to actually feeling like a photographer. Uh, great, great stuff. Uh, so here's the deal. Go there, free de free trial, lynda.com slash the talk show, and uh, go learn something new. My thanks to Linda. Uh, what else? Oh, so here's the other thing I want to talk about Twitter before we, we move on from Twitter. So the problem that I did, the bigger problem I see with Twitter, or the immediate problem I see with Twitter, is that their stock is in free fall. Well, maybe free fall is a little dramatic, but it's significantly down it's down below i think it still is actually i haven't checked since the last time i, I looked but it, oh it a is couple, <laughs> it's down it's down below the ipo level it's mm -hmm. uh which is dangerous dangerous meaning that they're it, it obviously the lower the stock drops the m more likely it is that somebody is going to buy them right um, it opened at 41 and it's currently at 27 right and i think so i think it's a market cap of around 19 billion Something seventeen point like eight nine, according to Google. Just all right. What I'm looking at. So then, add a little premium because you've got to add a premium. But so you could, mm -hmm. somebody could probably acquire Twitter. You know, call it a hostile takeover for around twenty billion, and it might that. You know, it, it, if this if the trend continues, that number gets lower and lower, and it's eventually it's going to reach a point where that's going to happen. Right? It's inevitable if the stock keeps dropping that somebody is going to buy them. Um. And I, I asked on Twitter the other day, who? And the, the companies that popped to mind for me immediately were Facebook, Google, Microsoft. Um, somebody else had a good one that I didn't think of. Apple obviously could because they have the money. I don't think Apple would, so I would drop Apple from the discussion immediately. I don't think Apple would see any interest in owning Twitter. No, I don't think so. Just yeah, doesn't, it just so. doesn't make sense. Uh, right. Other I've than thought the about it before, and yeah, it's never made real sense to me. Um, so one <laughs> thought is that maybe this would be a good thing because if, if somebody bought Twitter and left them alone and let them be Twitter, then all of these pressures that are unreasonable are gone. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, a lot of times companies buy smaller companies and 
wreck them. <laughs> so yeah, who do more, you... co- more often than not, they do. Right. Let's be honest. It is when it doesn't happen, like with Vine, for instance, like Twitter bought Vine, and Vine's actually doing really well, and I think is this super, super cool thing that's much different than when they bought it, but still very neat. They didn't wreck that. But when that no. happens, we're all surprised and, and delighted, right? I think the average company that gets acquired is going to get mashed up in some way to fit the revenue and, and outlook that the parent company you know, kind of wants from it. Yeah, and Vine is interesting. I don't really use Vine. I, I, I should say I don't use Vine. Uh, I obviously know what it is. But it it's, was news to me that, that um, there are, maybe there's not as many, but in the way that there are professional YouTubers, um, there are professional Vine people, you know, people yeah. who are doing, you know, whose Vine accounts do have enough uh, followers and who can charge enough for sponsored posts um, you know, it's, it, I know it sounds like lingo, but it's, you know, it's not a bad term, native content. In other words, you have a lot right. of Vine followers and a sponsor pays you to do a, a six second Vine for the, you know, featuring their product. And, mm-hmm. you know, and if you're good, you know, and you're, you're, you have all these followers because your Vines are funny, you make a funny Vine featuring a Coca-Cola and everybody's happy, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you know, it's, it's that win, win, win virtuous cycle of, you know, I know native content, again, it sounds like some kind of weird business development term, but when it works, it's really great because the video is just as funny as your other stuff. You, you can acknowledge it. You put it in a, you know, a hashtag or in the comment that this was sponsored. So there's mm-hmm. no, you know, you're not trying to hide it. Um, but your followers are happy because it's another funny video and the sponsor's right. happy because, you know, uh, you know, um, the million people who follow you or 500,000 people or whatever uh, had their product in front of them. Right, right, absolutely. And I think that's that's the way that most Viners are making any money if they are uh, currently. Um, Twitter actually bought a company called Niche, which it uses to sort of pair up Viners with brands uh, for advertisement that it basically, they created on Vine, posted on Vine, and then it gets used in an ad on Twitter. Uh, Vine has very little to do with that. They actually are not involved in monetizing any Viners stuff at all. Uh, they basically make the tools and then the Viners do the rest. Um, at least that's what it current, the way it currently works. But Twitter is definitely using some of that to their advantage. They're saying, hey, Coke, um, we've got this ad, we've got this ad, and we've got a Vine, right? Like you can make a Vine and tweet that out and promote that. And then people will watch it there, they'll watch it on Vine, and you'll get the natural uplift of those you know, millions of followers of that particular Viner. And some of these Viners are bona fide celebrities. I mean, talking screaming teenage girls, thousands in a conference waiting to see them celebrities. These are not by any means like flash in the pan, weird little pigeonhole celebrities. These are genuine as what we would think of a movie star in like the, you know, the Hedy Lamar, you know, movie star fashion. This is the modern equivalent. You know, Brad Pitt is not Brad Pitt to, to 12 to 15 year olds. You know, these, these Viners are. That's their Brad Pitt. That's their 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 idol that they and the, the great news is they're way more accessible than Brad Pitt ever was. So they can generate much more buzz and theoretically uh, earn a living at it and, and keep keep going down that path towards whatever their final goal is of celebrity. I have a link. I will put it in the show notes. I've actually meant to post this to Daring Fireball. Um but I didn't finish the article, and and this is a good reminder to me to finish it after we do this. But it's fascinating. It's a 
a July 31, uh, so it's just like a week old article from uh, Vanity Fair uh, by Richard Lawson. And he went to VidCon, V-I-D-C-O-N, in Anaheim, um, which is like where all of these YouTubes and Vine celebrities, um, 200 of them, uh, or 200 of them are considered millionaires that they're making over a million dollars a year, I guess, is what their definition of millionaire is. But anyway, a lot of money. Serious celebrity. And this is where uh, their fans got to meet them. And it's the picture is just, it, it, you know, it looks like the modern day equivalent of, you know, like when the Beatles came to America in the <laughs> 60s. No, I right. mean, it's... No, no, yeah, I, I agree. It's I've not just it, yeah. it's not just thousands of teenagers. It's thousands of teenagers in ecstasy. You know that they are screaming. <laughs> right, that's a good way to put it. Ecstasy, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and it is so funny. It is the modern world, and of course, they are all have uh, iPhones. <laughs> up Every in the single air. one. Every single one. It's rare right. to find a Vine creator actually that doesn't use an iPhone because the camera quality. No, yeah, I'll makes bet. Total sense. Yeah. Uh, but the the you know the fact that this is where celebrities are today. It's you know, and and the advertisers are smart. They're not going. They're they're not behind. People like me, who's you know rocketing towards old age, are are old. But the marketers are smart, and more or less. So that's why you know a company like Coke, and you think, wow, wow, that's pretty interesting that an established you know the you know Coke is arguably like the establishment of the marketing and advertising world that they're already doing this. Well, of course they are because like they you know they know that uh, if you want to reach teenagers, and of course Coca Cola wants to reach teenagers. If they don't, they're they're screwed. Uh, well, you don't mm-hmm. do that on you don't do that on TV, and no. it's you know, and that TV as the main place for like an advertiser like Coke to reach teenagers spans generations, plural. Mm-hmm. I mean, like by the time you and I were born, that was already the case. It was already the case. Uh, you know, Don Draper dreamed up the "I'd like to sing the world of Coke" uh, <laughs> before right. I was born. Right? That's right. before I was born. Where where TV was the primary thing for that. So it's very very easy when when something like TV has been established as the medium to reach teenagers for you know entire lifetimes of of people in the industry right now. It's very easy to to let that sort of settle in like cement. But it's not. I mean, like my son, my eleven year old son. He doesn't. He hardly watches any broadcast TV at all, and on his own, he watches none. It's only like when we're as a family and we decide to watch something that he right. is exposed to. And I honestly, I I don't think he understands the concept of a channel. I really don't because it's even when we do watch broadcast TV, it's all through the TiVo. Like I, he, I I've talked to him. I just I don't think he really understands the idea of <laughs> when you get cable TV, you have you know. Here's your 80 channels to choose from, and uh, you know, and, and you have to watch it. what you what you're watching when they put it on. I think that's right. the big thing, like the lack of on demand. That's the right. concept. I mean, my, my daughter is going to have no concept of that at all because even when we let her watch stuff on her on her iPad, like usually we when we're sitting with her, if she wants to watch something, we'll let her watch a movie. And uh, if she's watching a movie, that movie I found this very interesting because I'm a movie freak, but that movie is the temporal aspects of it are permeable to her. In other words, she just watches the bits that she wants to watch. Sometimes mm. she'll watch it all the way through. If we put it on the TV, in other words, if you use like the Apple TV to put it on the TV, she'll watch it beginning to end. And she, she loves movies, which I'm very happy about. She, she's been asking me to watch Batman, which I'm, I'm patting myself on the back 
about um, the Keaton Batman, not some cartoon. Anyhow, right. um, and she's three. I probably shouldn't, but let's just leave that parenting discussion to another day. <laughs> um, but the, the, that linearity of the movie, she just jumps back and forth, right? She'll watch the bits that she wants to watch. If there's something scary, she'll skip it. If there's something that, you know, a funny bit that she wants to watch again, she just drags her finger across the slider and she comes back. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not only the lack of channels, the the on demand nature, but also the linearity of it. You know, where we're we were used to watching something that lasted an hour and we were happy about it on VHS, and then we rewind it and watch it again or whatever. But that is gone, gone, gone. And Vine is a part of that because it's six seconds, and you build your own TV channel by following the people that you want and by by telling it what you like and letting it build a channel for you things like that and then that's your TV you watch vine for 10 minutes right and you right. get you watch somebody's creations watch a bunch of these creations tied together and that's a quote unquote program that that's been built for you out of your tastes and so when it comes time to tell them oh no no you're supposed to let somebody else determine what you are supposed to watch and supposed to like, and you're supposed to let them do that for hours on end. I just think that's going to be an incredibly tough concept for them. Yeah. So tons of money, enormous celebrity, uh, and it's all happening on YouTube and Vine. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very, very interesting. I mean, clearly, I, I don't think Vine is as big as YouTube, you know, in any sense, even in like the literal sense of how long the videos can be. Um, but it's... The the way that Vine featured so prominently in in this story of these VidCon celebrities and the fans who follow them um, really opened my eyes to the fact that Twitter has a real gem by owning them. Whether they figured out a way to make money from Vine or not, it it, it just reemphasizes my circling back to these. Hey, if their stock keeps circling mm-hmm. down, somebody is going to buy them because somebody is going to see that this is a tremendous thing to own. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and will they then, will they then keep the reasons why it is tremendous and, and sort of improve it or will they screw it up? Yeah. Right. I mean, and look at, you know, Facebook and Instagram. There's one where I love Instagram. Really do. Instagram is one of the few social things that I use. Really like it. And when Facebook bought them, my heart sunk because I thought this is, I, I, cause I don't even use Facebook. (laughs) I don't use Facebook. I, I really don't see the appeal of it. I don't like, you know, I don't like lots of things about it. They're going to wreck it. And if I didn't know that Facebook bought Instagram, I, 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 as of today, years down the road, I have no, would have no idea. Mm-hmm. They don't force any kind of Facebook sign in. Uh, it's every, everything, every way that the, that the app and the platform have evolved since then have been all to me, just purely Instagrammy, you know, to make up an adjective, uh, it all feels true to what it wanted to be, right? So I mean, I, I I have I'm a big fan of Instagram too, and I think a lot of it comes from the fact that that Mark Zuckerberg did leave Kevin System in charge, and he gave him you know sort of the ability to execute on the plans that he had already had with minimal fuss. And I think that Kevin's actually a pretty good thinker, you know, in terms of the stuff he cares. It, it's not it's not a situation where he's trying to maximize the the, his ROI from the users at every turn. Instead, it's you know what's right, and there's there are people that are able to do that, but there's very few people who are able to do that in the face of billions of dollars worth of you know money and revenue and everything else, right? So he's part of Facebook now, but still has managed to carve out a very unique spot for Instagram and, and keep it keep it good, which is a great thing. 
Yeah. Why the hell do you think they don't have a native iPad app? Uh, focus. I mean, I think it's about focus. I think that they, I mean, obviously they have all the engineering resources they could ever want, right? So they could, they could hire 50 engineers today to build a great native iPad app and it would display our Instagram photos and everything. So it's not that they don't have the resources. I think it's a matter of focus in terms of the Instagram works for a variety of reasons, but one of the major reasons it works is actually because of the way it's physically structured. The way, the way the feed works, you scroll one picture at a time, you look at one thing at a time, it scrolls by. And I mean, I've used, as I'm sure you have, I've used a, like a half dozen different iPad apps to browse Instagram because sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm on my iPad, I just want to look at what's new on Instagram. And that's fine, but the, it does not fear any, feel anywhere near as compelling. You're sort of presented with a bunch of pictures that feel less valuable all mm. in a grid, right? Whereas when you're scrolling down your Instagram feed, each one feels like it has merit and value. And, you know, it, it, sure, you may scroll by it quickly because you're not interested, but the ones you are interested, they, they take up your whole screen. They feel very front and center. So will they do it? Probably. But I can understand the reluctance, you know? I, I The way I would imagine doing it, and I know that in general for most apps – take your iPhone design and just blow it up to fit the iPad screen is not a good design for an iPad app. Um, I think Instagram is a rare case where it might be, you know, and, and make it so that, you know, I, I, maybe even just like the phone, make it so that it's, it doesn't rotate, make it so that you have to hold the iPad vertically and you just scroll down and they fit. And that way it just makes the photos bigger. That's right. I wonder, and I have no idea, but I wonder. On the other hand, they just maybe moved to high res photos. Right. So I wonder if it's been such crappy res for so long has stopped them, and now they moved up in preparation. I've thought that too. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's just because you know that the resolution wasn't yet big enough. They have to, you know, they had, and they did that recently. They've increased the size. What is the new size? Is it like a? Uh, 10, good, good question. I think it's like ten, twenty forty eight by twenty four eighty eight or something like that. Yeah, it's which pretty, is pretty big pretty big at least compared to where they were and it's certainly big enough to make a fine jpeg on i I, that would actually be pixel for pixel i think on 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 the the ipad iPad. yeah um which may be a coincidence or maybe not a coincidence (laughs) right right my only other thought is maybe they've tried it and that it just doesn't feel right and i'm i'm imagining that it would feel just great but that it doesn't so maybe i don't know but at this point i would have i mean if they haven't tried it i would be incredibly shocked so whether it right. feels right or not, I don't know. They've obviously tried it, so right. I don't know why we haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, Sorry, but yeah, as far as going, you know, companies you know staying whole inside other companies, I think that's a good example. But as to what companies' culture works for that, you know, it's very few. I mean, you could feasibly see Facebook buying them and leaving them alone, right? Like that, they have proven obviously that they have the ability to do that. Uh, and and not take it as like a matter of pride that they have to muck with it because I think that sometimes it just comes down to that. You think that Silicon Valley is super rational and all this stuff, but you know ego plays a part. People are human, so you get these egos in there who are like, oh no, I I got to put my stamp on this thing, and 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 they muck it up. So you you could conceivably see Facebook as a company who's already proven that you know Mark or whoever whatever PM is in charge of those products doesn't have that ego driven. Uh, approach and you can see hey they maybe they could buy it and leave it alone you know and they certainly have the money it's just a matter of um you know whether or not it fits with their overall strategy but given that they've got 
I mean, the, before they bought WhatsApp, I would have probably had a, a far less inclination to say that they'd buy it. But now that they've bought WhatsApp, I, it, it's definitely actually more of a possibility to me. I, I, yeah, to me, the top, it's, if I had to bet, it, it would be a, a bidding war between Facebook and Google. And Facebook, to me, it almost seems a little more likely because maybe Google's a little gun shy now about social. I, I, yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, when Vic and Gondotra left, they lost all direction on Google Plus. And I think Vic, I, I don't know why Vic left, and I'm not going to, you know, make assumptions that I don't know, you know, Jack about. But I, I do know that they have been planning to do the stuff that they did with Google Plus for like a year. You know, the spinning out of photos and, and removing it from a lot of their primary products and stuff like that. Um, we reported on that a year ago and, and people, you know, obviously got really mad at us and told us we were lying. I mean, the Google Plus <laughs> freaks came out in droves, but it, it was totally, you know, 100% accurate what we reported that they were planning on doing. And it's the right, it was the right move because it felt intrusive. It wasn't working. It wasn't providing them any social uplift uh, on the usage of their products. And it da actually did do what it needed to do, which is create a single sign-on service that allowed them to get more users using Google products, and especially search, while signed in. Because not only can they provide them a better experience through Google Now, which is freaking fantastic, but they can also, of course, serve them more accurate ads and gather more data on them. And wh whether you feel great about that or not is up to you. But that's the, that was the, the thought process, and that worked. As far as the social stuff, that was like Vic's brainchild. So I think when he left and whether it was causation correlation, I don't know, you know, what, what caused what, but when he left that stopped, you know, that was done as of that moment. So I don't think that it was necessarily that they're turned off by it because it sure it cost them a bunch of money, but they have a bunch of money and it's, it's worth it was, I think it was worth the, I mean, if you, there's no way to calculate it, but if I'm sure somebody Google has done the math and said, well, we got, you know, 800 million more signed in users or whatever over the course of a year or two years. And that's totally worth it. It, it way offsets the, the money that we spent. I don't know. Somebody of there has probably done some math, but aside from all the math aspect, I think that they, they didn't see that as like their bid to combat Facebook. And that's, that's where you get in these arguments about people that are like, no, they're trying to beat Facebook. And I'd never, ever thought it was about that. I don't think anybody who was really, really smart thought it was about them beating Facebook or whatever the case. It, it sort of was about other people owning the social channel and all the data involved, right? And so they didn't want to be left out of the cold on that. But I think that if you look at it that way, then you could say, oh, well, they could try again with a different thing, like Twitter maybe, right? And... um you know, maybe they get all the data that they need from Twitter uh, without having to actually uh, tell anybody, oh, you got to log into Google, right? And I think that if you go back to Twitter being a real-time component of the web, then it becomes much more clear why they might want it versus, oh, it's their new social in initiative. Instead, it's, oh, it's a pillar of the internet and Google's all, I mean, search is another pillar. So if search is one pillar and real-time is another pillar, you know, then they've got, I mean, two out of whatever, however many, I don't know, you know, I'm not going to count them offhand now, but there are several things that sort of have to exist for the web to exist. And obviously searching and indexing is one of them and Google's got that. And if real time is another one and they see this as an opportunity to grab that, that's why I think they buy it. Not for social necessarily, you know. Uh, 
Agreed. And I, you know, I think it makes total sense, for example, and, and I don't think it was rushed. I think it's so polished and it makes so much sense. But just the way that they've spun Google Photos into a standalone product, it it just makes pure sense. And it 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 is good for people who are, you know, in the Google e- ecosystem. Here, you sign up for this thing and, you know, you install this app uh, or maybe if you're on an Android phone, you, you the app is already there. And you sign in with your Google account, and now all of your photos are in the one, you know, in this one thing. Here's where they all are, and they're on all your devices. And we're going to do these compelling AI, uh, you know, recognition things on the content of the photos. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and that's more or less the end of the story, right? And then you can search for them, and you can say you can, you know, they they've got these cool features where you can search for things like, you know, winter. And it'll find <laughs> right. pictures or Which snow awesome. or something. <laughs> you know, sounds yeah. almost too good to be true. And it seems, you know, a lot of people, you know, it seems to re- work really well in reality. Um, and it, that's the end of the story. Well, that makes sense to uh, awful, you know, regular people. That just, right. it, you know, it's a value proposition is clear. And it just was never the case when photos were wrapped up in Google. It always seemed like it was a little bit like Facebook and a little bit like a photo library and a little bit, you know, and and it, it, a, a little bit of this and a little bit of that and trying to be more than one thing as opposed to here, Google Photos, all of your photos, it's just like Gmail, like what Gmail is to your email. Here's a thing that's like that to your photo library. There it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, speaking yep. of photos, let me take a break here and thank our uh our second sponsor, and it is our good friends at Fracture. So we've been talking about digital photos. Uh, Fracture is all about taking your photos and making them analog, right? You take your photos and memories, they're trapped somewhere way down in your Instagram feed or they're in your iCloud photo library or Google Photos or whatever. And all you ever do is see them on your phone or on your tablet or something like that. You see them on these screens. Uh, Boy, it's really nice to have your photos uh, in the real world, hanging on your wall, put them up, you know, hang them on the wall, going up the steps, put them on the shelf, uh, in your office, put them on your desk, somewhere where they're tangible and analog with your, the photos that mean the most to you. Um, what Fracture does, and if you're listening to the show regularly, you've heard me talk about them before. They take your photos and they print them directly on glass. It's not a piece of paper stuck to glass. I don't know. They've got some kind of magic process where they take glass and that's what the actual image is printed on. It is a very, very compelling physical artifact. It is really, really great. Um, I don't know what to say because they keep sponsoring the show. Here's the thing. They've, they've written to me. They keep sponsoring the show. People keep going there, following my advice, doing this and buying fractures, and then they keep buying more. It's like you might think, how come every single week I listen to this show, Fracture is sponsoring the show, I worry that it gets repetitive, but here's the thing. People keep buying these photos and I can't say enough good things. I mean it sincerely from the, even if they said, you know what, we love you. You've, you know, you've brought us so many great customers, but we're, you know, we're not going to sponsor the show for a while. I would still recommend Fracture to anybody who wants to get photos printed. You want to get your photos printed. It is, it's just great. It is so fantastic. Go there, check them out. They, they have sizes that range from little, uh, you know, I don't know, like a three by three or four by four, all the way up to massive, like 23 by 27 inch, really, really big, big pieces of glass. Uh, go to, here's where you go. Their website is fractureme.com. 
and uh, the code is Daring Fireball. And that's good for 15% off your first order. Uh, and their prices are already great. So you're saving money on what's already a great deal. So go to FractureMe.com and remember the code Daring Fireball. And if you haven't yet, go print out a couple of your photos from uh, your vacation or whatever you've done this summer. My thanks to them. Did you ever, uh, did you ever take a photograph? <laughs> yeah, I've taken, I've taken one or two. I used to be a professional photographer in my previous <laughs> life. <laughs> uh, what do you think? Uh, I knew that was a loaded question. What oh, is? What okay. are your opinions? <laughs> well, here's where I'm going with it. I'm going to parlay from from uh, the fracture thing to talking about uh, the Photos app for Mac. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which I'm sort of formulating my opinion on. I, I'm a very slow thinker in general. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but <laughs> you're um, deliberate. Let's let's say you're deliberate. <laughs> I I for years. Um, used Lightroom and I actually still have a, for you know all of those years my my photo library from those years is all in Lightroom um, but to kind of force myself to um, uh, give photos a really good try I don't have Lightroom installed on my uh, retina iMac yet i'm going i'm actually about to at some point this summer i'm going to break down and go back to lightroom at least just to have my library there mm-hmm. um and a twitter conversation i had with um uh, uh uh dr wave from uh pixar yeah uh, uh yeah michael johnson uh who is all it, it He's even he's a he's a better photographer than I am, but you know oh, it's yeah. similar to oh, me where me where we're we're not you know we're not pros. He's he's a you know he does software at Pixar, um, but we actually even have the same camera. We you know we and we have a, a similar liking for uh, fast prime lenses, and mm-hmm. you know and we just shoot the same way. Which is the way you get a couple of good photos is if you're going to take a nice camera, you shoot lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of photos, and then you import them, sure. and you find you know you throw what you literally just throw most of them away find the in keepers. the old days we used to say film is cheap but right. that no longer applies it actually applies even more now but right yeah, and if cheap. you watch if you watch what prof- i've talked about this a couple of weeks ago where it's it's like i really i cannot wait for professional photographers to switch to mirrorless cameras because i find it so annoying at at like news events sports or like you know like when, <laughs> when a president of you know the president of the united states is making a, a statement or something like that and you hear the professional photographers it's this machine gun clack 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 like just shooting you know whatever however fast their cameras can go per second which is getting to be extraordinarily fast you know 10 12 right. shots per second non-stop Easy. oh yeah uh-huh. uh to get what one photo to accompany a news story but that's what you do because digital is cheap anyway to me, Lightroom has all sorts of features that are meant to to support that sort of workflow, where mm-hmm. you can just go through and just uh, uh, I forget the key if it's X or whatever, but you don't even have a modifier. You just keep going arrow arrow, and you can just mark photos for deletion, and yeah, it doesn't it's even a, spend up bracket. I think is the default, but you may have changed it. Uh, yeah, I don't remember what the I'd have to look it up, but um, uh, it, it more or less my workflow, and and maybe there's other ways to do it. Is you go you import let's say 300 photos into Lightroom and you just start going through them and you 
you know, you find my first cut is to just throw out the ones I don't even want to bother with. And I just go mm-hmm. through with arrow keys to go, you know, through the photos and one key to just mark for deletion. And it doesn't even delete them. It just it's like a special flag. Like you want to delete this and it dims out the photo. But that way you're not waiting for the disk to do anything. It's just like a little, you know, one little piece of metadata in a database. And you can go right. really, really fast. And Lightroom, yeah, you yeah, know, that is, is X. I'm sorry, I was thinking of star rating, but yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's X, right? It's and right, it, it makes so. it's the new, you know, the mnemonic is easy. It's like you're Xing out the photos, and it's mm-hmm. it's like the real world version of you have a big stack of photos, and you just start flipping through, and you put them in two columns, keepers, and you know, here's the trash can. Yeah, well, I mean, you literally you know. used to do that with a context sheet. You would just X out the ones you didn't want, so you didn't bother looking at them again. Exactly. Right. That would be the old way would be the context sheet. Right. And it's, you know, and if you've ever watched, you know, or you probably did it since you were shooting film and you were, you know, actually a pro, you, you know, you'd have like a grease pencil and just literally X them out. Um, bottom line for me is, is the problem with photos is there's no way to do that. It's, it's photos to me is fun. This is the insight I've come to is that fun photos is fundamentally built around a much more consumer minded mindset, which is that most of the photos you take, you want to keep. And, you know, whether that's based on coming from the phone world, you know, where you don't, even though you can do burst mode and, you know, which is amazing. If that's their thinking, they're wrong. (laughs) <laughs> because I'm sorry, but if you look at like my daughter's iPod, she's got 150,000 selfies on it, and I don't think that's ever going to change. You know what I mean? I yeah. think that the selfie thing, for 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 sure, for sure, is something where people take a ton of photos before they find one that they like. And I've seen my wife do it, you know. And she's not even a huge selfie taker. She's not, you know, super into that. But every once in a while, she likes to and send it to her friends. Like she got makeup on, and like, oh, I tried this new thing, and but she takes a ton. And then picks one, right? But she still takes that ton. So yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I I think that it's not just pros. I think a lot of people do that. And I think if their thinking is that is people taking one precious photo and being done, I think they're they're wrong. Especially because phones shoot so fast now. You know, they used to just like oh, getting one out of them was a a chore. But now it's like bam, bam, bam. As you as you mentioned with the burst and everything. Yeah, and it just doesn't support that. And I feel like, and and the other thing too is, I kind of feel like they should not just should support it because I want to use it, but they should support it because I feel like, in in my honest opinion, it's a good thing to encourage people to do to take lots of photos to try, you know, and that that's how you get one or two that are really good. Don't try to if you want to get like two really good photos from your kid's birthday party. Don't don't sit there and try to aim up one or two good ones. Take 60, 70, 80 pictures and then go look through them on as big a screen as you can get and see which ones actually came out good. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the, the app just does not support that. I, I mean, one thing is that there's no way... It, it, and this is on a, a new iMac, so it, it is... I wouldn't call it slow, and I don't have a mm-hmm. huge library. I've, you know, I think I've got like 20,000 photos in there. Um, so I wouldn't call it slow. And you know, it imported my old iPhoto library fine. But it's it's not that fast and it always seems to do the wrong thing when i delete like you actually just have to delete a photo to delete it and just hitting the delete key doesn't work because that brings up a warning dialog you sure you want to delete it so you have to command delete (laughs) right which isn't too bad it's command delete isn't too bad which is immediate you know and it's it's not the thing that annoys me about the delete key is that bringing up a dialog every time is that it it doesn't 
it, it, it doesn't wipe it off the disc. It moves it to a, a trash can type thing where you could right. get it back or you can do undo if you make a mistake. Um, but even then, it, it often goes to the wrong photo. It doesn't go to the next photo. It goes to the one I looked at before. And it doesn't seem... Mm. I, and I could be wrong here, but maybe I just want to go the wrong way. Maybe I'm always trying to go... The, and it always wants you to go forward in time and I want to go backwards, you know, from the most recent to the least recent. Uh, I don't know. But uh-huh. it, but it, when you're in that mode and you just want to fly through 100 pictures, it's annoying if you keep having to hit three or four keys and arrow and go back and back, go back, you know, over and over and over again. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I do not think it is built for that kind of editing at all. And there's a couple possibilities. One possibility, it could be that we are hundred percent wrong and that the data supports the fact that people take a few photos at a time. Right. So it's, it, if you look if they're like, Oh, well, you know, you guys don't know what we know. And our, what we know is that data on millions and millions of users says that these, this is the way people shoot. And we serviced that with this product. And that you, you guys are the outliers and you need to use Lightroom, right? So that's one possibility. Um, the second possibility is that there is a disconnect between the team that is building photos and the teams that built their professional photo products in the past. So I, from what I understand, it's not like they took the the uh, Aperture team and had them build photos. Like those people scattered everywhere and and are building other things, uh, for better or for worse. You know. So if you're if you took the institutional knowledge of the people building, you know, Aperture, and brought it in, and they they could then tell you, oh man, you know, if you're if you want people to use this in as any sort of core tool you're going to need to support people blasting through a bunch of pictures and editing them um then maybe that would have been built differently but i don't know if that institutional knowledge was there so that's another possibility well what i've what i heard and i i could be wrong well i i'm not wrong i could be wrong just in a matter of degree is that it what what's now called photos for mac or just photos started life internally as iphoto x it mm-hmm. you know it was definitely not just the next version of iPhoto. It wasn't just a bump the integer. It was you know like when they've had these other products get an X or something like that, like with iMovie, like where they kind of uh, radically redid the the concept of it. It was mm-hmm. a radical rewrite. It was a rewrite, but it was a rewrite of iPhoto. You know, definitely, and it was even by name. And it changed after you know from where that started. It did change where they strategically said, you know, that's that's the iPhoto is the wrong way to go. What we really want to do is, you know, have this unified photo platform across iOS and Mac. And so we should we should just do, you know, follow the lead of iOS and just call it photos and and the design changed at that point too. Clearly because mm. it's it's clearly a sibling to the to the iOS photos app. Right. Um but I still think, though, that that shows in its roots, you know, because to me, that was the problem. I mean, years ago, why I didn't use iPhoto and, and, you know, taught myself to use Lightroom instead was that iPhoto to me was never, ever good for people who shot a lot of, you know, shot the way I shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I Lightroom is my boy. Like, I love Lightroom or my girl, however you want to I want to be correct about that. Um, but it, I really, really like it. I mean, it's the the easiest best tool that has come along for photographers in generations. And, you know, these days there's lots of arguments about it getting stale and all this stuff, but I still think it's 
it got exactly the right things right, which is you you need to deal with complex adjustments in a way that allows you granularity of control. You know, you need to be able to blast through and do an initial pass, and then you need to be able to to kind of diddle down and, and drill down into minute adjustments. Even jump out to Photoshop if you really need to, and then jump back. And I think that that was an incredibly smart build for Adobe, and and really really well done by them. And I just think it hasn't been matched by any other tools, including Aperture, um, since it came out. And I know there's obviously devotees of either side, but you know people that loved Aperture are out of luck anyway. So I think it's really really a great tool, and I think that's it. Just may be the case that the eighty percent use cases are never going to be that way. And, and photos is always going to act and work that way. And we're just, we don't have the data to understand that that's what people want. But I do agree with you that it's just not great for like going through a bunch of photos at once. I rarely, rarely ever use it for anything beyond opening it up, finding a photo and sharing it. Like that's the mm -hmm. way I treat it. Like I, I'm able to search through photos by, you know, date or group or event and, and share them with family members and that sort of thing. If I'm going to do any sort of editing, I open it in Lightroom. So I'm, I'm, I haven't done the thought experiment of trying to force myself to use it, you know, to see if I could, it, it would work with my workflow. So I haven't gone down the route you're going, but it doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me for those reasons. And I, I don't, I haven't used it. So I can't speak to its efficacy there. I'm not, I don't want to speak out of turn. Here's a question I have for you. Um, do you import your photos that you shoot on your iPhone into Lightroom? No. Mm -mm. Me neither. Only. Yeah. Me neither. With maybe like one or two rare exceptions, you know, over the course of like six or seven years, once or mm -hmm. twice, maybe there'd be something. Uh, I don't, maybe I'm even wrong though. I don't, maybe I never did. I never ever did that. So for, for years I had like two, completely different photo universes there was my lightroom library which was the images i shot with my you know canon digital slr and uh, you know within the last few years my uh fuji x100s oh and mm -hmm. and years earlier years i had i had uh the rico grd um my and and in my mind those were my real photos uh and then i had my iphone photo library which was mostly just on my iPhone and then every once in a while I would like open up uh, just image capture copy all the ones off and put them you know put them in a folder in my Dropbox just so I'd have a you know a backup of them <laughs> online right I right. just have like a full, I literally just have, I, 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 it just goes by year. I've got like, and I know Dropbox has some kind of feature like that, but I didn't, I don't like that feature because I don't want Dropbox screwing around with my other photos. All yeah, I want yeah. is somewhere where everything I've taken with my iPhone is, you know, somewhere where it's accessible online. So I just have like a, you know, Dropbox. I have like a uh, iPhone photo library or something. I forget what I called it. Uh, and then inside that, it's just a one folder for each year. And inside that are all the photos I took on my iPhone from that year. That's it. Right. Um, but so I really like the thing I really do like about photos for Mac and the iCloud photo library is I love that I don't have to do that by hand. I don't have to like mm -hmm. remember, hey, you know, it's been a couple months since I've backed up the, you know, the the photos on my phone they just show up and i it's right. you know it's just one of those things where people say apple doesn't get services right well the the for me at least the icloud photo library they got right because i take a screenshot on my phone or it's I there within seconds photo. yeah it's there by the time i put my phone down and go to my mm -hmm. keyboard and switch to the photos app and i go to yeah the, that's been know, really recent. really good 
And that is really, really convenient for things like if I want to send somebody a screenshot of like an app that I'm testing. Uh, it's great if I'm at my desk and I have my you know Mac right here, and so I can. It'd be a lot easier for me to take, or maybe I'm already halfway through writing the email on my Mac. Um, it's great to just switch to the you know take the screenshot on my phone, go to the Photos app, and there it is, and I can get it right out. That's fantastic. So yeah, I it's been really of, good. I, I mean, remember how bad? I mean, it was so bad before. Like they, it would never show up in half no. the time. You have to reset yeah. it all the time and stuff. So they did. Yeah. I mean, they did a good job with this iteration of it. Yeah. Um, <coughs> uh, I don't know what to do in the long run, though. I don't know. I guess what I maybe what I should do, but it seems like an awful lot of busy work. Is that every time I shoot photos that I put into Lightroom? do my picks, adjust them the way I want, and export them all to you know the highest resolution JPEG possible and then import those into the Photos app just so that those photos... Does Photos are... support a watched folder? I don't think it does. And if it did... That would be ideal. Yeah, but the problem, I, that I, again, maybe I'm not enough, maybe I need to you know take an advanced Linda course on Lightroom, but I don't think that there's a way... <laughs> but this, because Lightroom's non-destructive... I don't think there's a way that there would be a watched photo, a watched thing that would pick up my adjustments unless no, I take no, the extra. No, no, you'd have to manually export them to JPEG, right. but in that fold, that watched folder, oh, which would then be that, imported. You know what I mean? Yeah, I see what you mean. So all I'd have to do is do the export. Like iTunes has that watched folder thing. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I'm not sure if it I don't does. know. Yeah, I don't think it does, but it would be a good feature if they added it. If anybody out yeah. there. Is. For now, I'm bifurcated right down the middle. I mean, I'm still like everything. My family stuff like the stuff that comes off of my my wife and I the way I set it up is that she has her own iCloud account for a lot of stuff but we share purchases and I've rigged it up so that any photos we take are all imported so we have you know shared iClouds for that so I see her photos and my photos all in one iPhoto library she, my mm -hmm. wife doesn't even have a computer she uses her phone and an iPad she doesn't she's not interested she her work doesn't use it she doesn't need it so it's not really a priority for her. She uses my laptop once every couple of months, you know, like, oh, I want to go, you know, browse a bunch of shopping sites or something. But in general, she does all of it from her iPad and phone. And so anything she takes or shoots or any of that is just dumped into my central repository on my iMac. And then, which is, of course, then backed up via Time Machine and then backed up uh, to Backblaze, you know, separately. But that central repository is our life from like the beginning I think that, honestly, the first photos in my iPhoto library right now, because I got married in 2004, and the the photos in my um, library, wait, 2005? Oh, my God, my wife's going to kill me. Anyhow, I got, <laughs> <laughs> I got married before the iPhone, pre-iPhone. Um, and so the first photos in my library from phones and all that jazz, you know, I had some older stuff imported in there, but mostly from the phones and stuff. Everything is our life, right, together imported into that library and once she got an iphone she started basically getting my hand-me-down iphones and and then eventually buying her own iphones new ones when she wanted them all of those photos are all in that that repository and so i view that as a timeline of my life and i know this is the way that organ this is the the value that companies like facebook and dropbox see in the auto upload and google because it's a timeline of your entire life right those right. photos are there's so much data from them. And if, if Google can, for instance, tell you what's winter, then they know your kid's growing up. They can probably estimate its age, right? Like these are, 
that's there's a lot of data in those photos and not to mention the actual metadata which is very easy to read so that aspect of things that timeline i like having that one repository for it there in in photos now um and i don't like mixing in because when i used to shoot like a wedding or something like that i don't want that in there right i don't want that in my family library so that goes in iphoto and then if i ever do like you know, a formal shoot, or if I pick up my SLR, which is getting more and more rare, to be honest, and shoot family photos, then I will export those and I'll import those into iPhoto so that it remains a canonical record, you know, of our lives together in that thing. Um, Whereas Lightroom is more along the lines of like, oh, I I have a rare free day and I'm going to go shoot landscapes or, or, you know, shoot macro stuff or whatever. I'm going to use Lightroom for that purely. I'm never going to touch photos.app with that. Yeah. stuff yeah. same here yeah all right uh enough on photos let's yeah. talk about uh, our next sponsor my next sponsor here is our good friends at automatic now this is a really really cool thing automatic is a connected car adapter it plugs into your car's diagnostic port any car made in recent years has one of these things it's the this is what like you, your your dashboard might light up and say hey you need service e3 or something like that you don't even know what that means uh, well, when you take it into the place, you know, the, your mechanic, car dealer, wherever you go to get your car service, what they do is uh, they know what that stuff means. They But they plug a thing into this port and it tells them exactly what's going on. Um, every car since 1996 has one of these things. So the automatic, it's a dongle, you, a dingus. You plug it in there and then they've got an app and the app pairs with your phone on Bluetooth and you get all of this information. And it's not just diagnostic information about like, you know, like the equivalent of the check engine light coming on. Uh, it can tell you all sorts of stuff in plain English, uh, like just like how efficiently you're driving. So it knows like mileage wise. So if you follow the advice of the app, you can get better mileage, uh, you know, all sorts of advice on as you drive, save money on gas, stuff like that. Uh, it knows where you are. It integrates with your phone's GPS. So, uh, you ne- if you're, you know, if you don't have like a parking spot or something, if you, you know, park in a city or something like that, you'll never lose your car because the automatic dingus knows where it is. Um, even has cool features. And again, I hope nobody ever has to use this. Nobody listening ever does, but it'll call emergency services in the case of an accident. Uh, cause the cars, you know, if, you know, with the, the, uh, airbags and stuff like that cars know when they're in an accident and the diagnostic port has the information automatic if you're ever in an accident and and you couldn't call automatic will make a call like that to 911 with your location data uh right away really really cool features um here's the thing they've got a new thing in the app store i don't know if you've seen this but the this is brand new really really recent is that they've got 20 apps they call them apps for the automatic platform uh and it gives you all sorts of cool new stuff. Uh, you can integrate with Nest so that you're, uh, d- you get close to home and have your thermostat adjust at the right time just based on your location. All automatic based on the location of your car. You know, 15 miles from home, turn the thermostat to a new temperature. Uh, they integrate with IFTTT, if this then that. Gives you the power to build all kinds of recipes based on um, your driving. Uh, minute levels of details. Really, really cool for tinkers. Uh, it, it, just go to automatic.com slash apps and you'll see more. I could go on and on and on. Uh, 
here's the deal. You have, here's the code. The code is the talk show. So go to automatic.com slash the talk show. You get the code. Uh, the code will save you 20%. And that's for anybody who listens to the show. Uh, it ships in two business days and they have a 45 day return policy. Here's the thing. It's a hundred bucks period. You just buy it. It's just a thing that you buy. It's not a service you subscribe to. You don't pay 10 bucks a month so that you can keep using it. You buy one of these things once a hundred bucks, but with the code, the talk show, it's only 80 bucks, 80 bucks. That's it. You own it. You're in, you're good for as long as the thing lasts. And it's, that's it. 80 bucks and you get all of this cool stuff. The app is free. All of these things are free. It's really, really fun. So anybody who has a car, why not buy this thing for 80 bucks? You're crazy if you don't. Uh, so go to automatic.com. Automatic is spelled the normal way. Automatic.com slash the talk show and find out more. My thanks to them. Go buy this thing. It's really, really cool and, and set up some cool uh, if this, then that recipes. How do you pronounce IFTTT? I don't know if, do you say if this, then that or do you say IFTTT? I say ift. ift. I may be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I just say ift. <laughs> it's it's one of those things where I I see it, I read it with my eyes all the time, and I don't really hear it. Uh, I don't know how you're supposed to say it. When I, I know exactly them, what I it is. I think they say ift. Like I've talked ift. to those guys, you know, plenty, and they I think they say ift. I I may be wrong, but um, I like that stuff. I like that thing a lot. That product. They're, I mean, I they really, do I really cool hope stuff. they find a path to success there. In terms of you know how to survive, how to make money, because I think it's awesome. Internet, yeah, yeah, they're they're like the glue between everything. I, what's the Internet of Things? God, that's an annoying term. But if 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 is it's it's more and more it's like everything that could integrate with that integrates with it, which is really kind of awesome. And right. it's sort of an old, to me, it's it, the thing that they have that I really like is it's the old school, like early internet idea of we're going to open this stuff up and have APIs and it, it, we're just truly open. Anything that right. can integrate with us, you don't have to like work out a business development deal or something like that. Or, you know, we're not going to cut you off like, you know, like with the, the Twitter API where there's mm -hmm. these keys and you can get cut off based on the whims of the stuff. It's all just open. It's just there. And any way you can figure out a way to integrate your product with them, you can do it, which to me is is really cool. And we don't see enough of that anymore. No, I mean, they're, they're the spiritual successor to Yahoo Pipes, which was just shut down this year. Yeah, I, I, I loved Yahoo Pipes. That was so yeah. fun. Yeah, it's a shame that they... Because that was a very Yahoo feature, too. It's a shame that they... I, I'm not surprised that they got rid of it, but it's... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not too shocked. I'm not like, oh, why? You know, but right. it's, it's still kind of bummer that it doesn't exist anymore, you know? Yeah. Uh, what else? What else is in the news? I saw there was a thing last week where the San Jose Business Journal reported that Apple bought uh, like an enormous piece of land... Uh, I guess it's about as big as the campus that they're building uh, somewhere in that like undeveloped land outside San Jose. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you yeah, saw Yeah, they bought it. a big chunk of property, yeah. And nobody really has any idea what the hell they're going to do with it. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, that's, but that's the thing. It's like it is news and it is interesting that they bought an enormous piece of land, but then, uh -huh. you know... They're, they're not saying what they're going to do with it. And so everybody is just left to speculate, which is great because this is what we do. We're professional speculators. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it, it is almost better when you can just speculate, when you know that 
literally only four people even know what they're going to build on it. You know, like yeah. Tim Cook knows, Eddie knows, you know, it, it, like a couple of the people know, but that's that's it, you know? Because uh, then you're free to just say, hey, I wonder what they could do. <laughs> you're not actually tied down to going, well, let's report this out because, you know, somebody knows. There's a chain. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, 15, like 15,000 workers or whatever there is what their Mercury News was estimating, I think, that, that they could hold. Um it, there's and they already bought a two hundred ninety thousand square foot building in North San Jose as well, and I guess it's like their first office there since the eighties. So wow. they're they're definitely investing, and it is interesting to me that they're they're buying a plot of land that is car factory sized. Yeah, I mean it's just interesting. <laughs> it, I, interesting is like the only word I can use for it at the moment. I I do wonder though. I mean, and, and it's like if they don't build any of the compute. I know, and I guess they do build like the Mac Pros, but that you know that whole building the Mac Pros in the U.S. thing. You don't haven't heard much about that recently. Um, and the phones, of course, are still all assembled in in China. I, I'm not saying that means that they would. And I realize that shipping a phone from China to the U.S. is very different than shipping a car from China to the U.S. And I'm not saying that means that they would make cars in China, but I don't know. The, the factory, it is interesting that it is roughly the, you know, or it would fit a factory. And there are cars made in the U.S. I mean, that's the difference, you know. You know, there's a lot of cars made in the U.S. So it's possible. It's, you know, it sure is interesting. Um, what's the square foot? Uh, so it's, it's I 43 thought- acres. And I wonder what square footage that rolls at because the the Tesla the Tesla factory is five point three million square feet. Um, I don't know what this forty three acre piece of land translates into, right? But it it seems to be com- comparative size. But I, I mean, I'm getting into trouble here because I haven't done the math. But right. regardless, the, Tesla has a factory in Fremont. You, you know the story behind that, how they got that factory, right? No, I don't think so. So they there was a factory there that was owned by GM and Toyota. And it was like 1984, They Toyota and GM got together. This was like right post the whole Japanese cars, what? And then everybody was realizing Toyota was actually way ahead of, you know, American manufacturing. And they started, they got together and they created this thing called NUMI, which is, I don't know what it stands for. Like, a, I just remember the acronym because it's funny, but it's like a, uh, United Motor or something. But basically, they got together and created this new me partnership where they worked on advanced tech in there together that they would share. You know, whether that's stuff that goes in the dash or drivetrain or whatever, I don't know. But yeah, it was this partnership that existed for years until like 2009. And right when the partnership was dissolving and they were looking to sell the factory, Tesla was like <laughs> running out of money and didn't have enough to buy to build their own but just had enough money and, and and was able to raise enough money to buy this factory. Uh, and and huh. uh, I think GM actually took a stake, uh, if I remember correctly, in Tesla hmm. or Toyota did. I can't remember which. But basically, they were able to buy this factory for pennies, pennies on the dollar. Because this would normally require billions to buy, you know. Um, but Apple certainly doesn't have that problem. You know, they have billions. They could definitely buy, buy their own factory. But I thought it was very interesting. Like, Tesla was able to scoop this thing up and renovate it and make it their own. And now they've done several upgrades. It's all, you know, pristine, white, and all kinds of robotic stuff inside. That's um, very, very impressive. But you, you, <laughs> one wonders what one could do with unlimited funds, right? 
in, in not having to just scoop up something that already existed on the fly. Because Tesla's done a pretty decent job of turning out cars from that when nobody thought they ever could. Yeah. So be interesting to see what somebody could build from the ground up that had essentially unlimited money. Big picture. And there's a, you know, it's one of those where there's smoke, there's fire things. I mean, Apple's made hires. They've hired people from the auto industry. It's, it, you know, in some sense, it seems crazy. It's like, come on, is everybody going to make cars? I mean, you know, it's, it's just, but on the other hand, it's, to me, it, it kind of makes sense. And to me, it, it, not the idea of Apple getting into making cars. And, you know, there was this big leak that, you know, that they've had high level discussions with BMW about a partnership, maybe, um, you know, clearly they're looking into it. I mean, you can almost state that as a fact. I mean, other, I mean, and it, the only way that it's not a fact that they're at least thinking about making cars would mean that an awful lot of reporting is, has been fabricated. So let's, you know, mm -hmm. they're at least looking into it. Um, sure. I think, I think it's definitely safe to say they're looking at cars, the automotive space. I mean, they're not going to get into car play and not think about the rest of the dash at the very right. least. You know? Uh, I think it's it, you know, at a very high level, it just makes intuitive sense because cars cost a lot of money and they involve, uh, they, and can be differentiated and succeed because of design. Um, and they're going to be increasingly computerized in various ways, not just like what, you know, having a touchscreen on the dash, but you know, this self-driving and stuff like that and crash detection and, you know, trying to make cars that, whether they're self-driving or entirely or partially or something like that, but you know, we're going to head within our lifetimes. We're going to get to a point where cars can't crash, and mm -hmm. uh, or at least it's exceedingly rare. You know that it, yeah, it's very very get, difficult to do. Mm -hmm. Try to get it up to like airline levels <laughs> of of safety, um, as opposed to you know, which truly, I mean, if you really, I think you you know, and then we'll quickly look back on and like the the number of people who die every year now in car accidents and we're going to, you know, it's going to look barbaric. I really do think that's coming. I think, but you know, so there's a, there's money to be made. B design counts. C they can be cool. Uh, therefore, uh, why wouldn't Apple want to make it really? I mean, aren't those the exact arguments behind why they got into making watches? People spend a lot of money on them. Design counts. And we think watches are cool. Therefore we're going to mm -hmm. make a watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think you're. I think you're right in that the thought process is: can we differentiate? Right? right. It's not can we make money. And I think that a lot of people run aground against that when they're thinking about what Apple will or won't do, or may or may not do. And then they run aground against this argument, like, oh, well, can they make a bunch of money at it? And that's not necessarily the argument. I mean, I think it's obviously part of it. And you know, I don't ever foresee Apple going into a, a business where they can't sustain it on its own merit. Um, or as a support structure for another business, which is the way kind of iTunes worked for many years until it started making a lot of money. But I think that it's it's highly unlikely that they're ever going to go into a space where they can't differentiate themselves strongly, and mm -hmm. that differentiation doesn't lead to what they perceive anyway. Let's just sidestep any arguments, but what they perceive to be consumer benefit, you know, benefit yeah. for people that are buying it. And I think cars ripe cars are ripe for that. Because, I mean, I love, I love, love cars. I mean, I grew up, you know, building cars with my dad. I, I love them in all forms from old to new and, you know, this side to that side of the, the world. But most of them, most of them are crap. Like, they're super, <laughs> they're crap. Like, you, like, I sit in, like, I crawl into a, 
I don't even want to mention brand names because somebody will get offended. But like you crawl into a like a midsize sedan and you just look at like the finish makes my skin itch. Like the <laughs> the the door panels, you touch them and the the plasticky feel, like the 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 fingertip feel on the steering wheel, it just makes me break out in a rash most of the time. And so I just think that there's so many I mean, can you imagine Joni Ive waxing Repsotic about the leather wrapping on a steering wheel? I could. Yeah, you know, I just absolutely. think that there's plenty of opportunity there for them to offer a cut above at a price that is reasonable for what you're getting, like safety innovations, design innovations, uh, technology and electronics innovations that set them apart from the pack, offer user benefit and allow them to differentiate. It's like a no-brainer right. that they could do something there. Right, and the industry is heading towards some sort of inflection point where new technologies are finally, I hate to abuse the word finally, but finally, you know, taking over from internal combustion engine. And um, Mm -hmm. I haven't, I've actually never been in a Tesla Model S. I do love, I love the way they look and, you know, but I've never been in one. But somebody mentioned the other day that it doesn't have the, uh, because it doesn't have a transmission, it doesn't have the transmission hump on the floor. Right. Um, Yeah. There's no center column hump. Right, and I it, it it never occurred to me that a car couldn't wouldn't have that. I don't know like every right. car I've ever been in has had the transmission hump. It's I've never that even you thought treat it about, as lost space, you know. That you right, never get it's it back. A, what do you mean that there's not? I was like, oh, of course not, you know. But that's crazy to me. But you know, and it's just one small thing of like, hey, look, we can rethink lots of things, you know, with with new technology, and we're headed there. So it's kind of exciting. The thing is, is that making cars is physically it takes a lot of space so i i really do hate to i mean it's just a guess i don't know any anything about this real estate transaction yeah me neither i it if i had to bet though boy i have to think it's about the car development thing just because i think you need so much space you know that and maybe you'd want to have them off on their own you know campus yeah i mean the 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 problem with all this the divining rod stuff about the car and about any other project is that they probably have half a dozen really far out project projects that would blow up in headlines going on right now. They literally are just like, I don't know, let's try this. Right. And, and they put several people on it and they give them some resources and they play with it until they see if something interesting comes of it. And I think that's just the value of having their structure, their cellular structure, um, the way that they, they develop products and experiment and play with different lines of thought. So the watch interface came out of that, and you know the uh, obviously multi-touch. Everybody knows by now that multi-touch came out of that. You know, out of essentially a side bet experiment, and that kind of thing leads to. <laughs> I mean, it leads to misinformation because somebody can take something as as being, you know, in production or get them getting ready to launch, and it's really just four guys in a room kind of talking about it. You know, and I think that 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 aspect of it leads to a lot of false starts and false leads and, and all that jazz. So it's hard to throw a divining rod on this, but considering the stuff that, that we've heard publicly and seen publicly, the amount of people that they've hired there, I think it's safe to say that they see something worth exploring in the automotive space. And yeah. I think that if you're looking there, you then you start thinking about and technologies that would attach to that space. And some of the stuff that we've seen over the past couple of years, like in patents and things that I've heard and things that people have reported but were never able to really lock down, it starts to make some sense. Because when you start thinking about rethinking the car, 
as you mentioned with like the, the hump on the floor, right? You, you, that's something you don't foresee until you get in there. And then you're like, oh, hey, we don't need this, right? Like this doesn't exist in our car. Like Tesla's first one was a revamped, you know, smart car from like GM. And then they did a revamped Mercedes, like a Mercedes like C-Glass or something like that. that they just made electric. Obviously in those, those design things aren't apparent. Because they haven't built, built it from the ground up to work it the way that they want. And then when they start designing the Model S, they're like, oh, hey, <laughs> we don't need this, right? And I think that there's some other things you could think about. Like, for instance, augmented reality, right? You've seen Apple patents about 3D gesture yeah. control and augmented reality for a while and rumblings of that. What if they have an augmented reality team and somebody goes, oh, well, they're going to launch augmented reality for in like a gla glasses for your face. Well, maybe not. What if it's for a windshield? What if you don't have to think about the way a windshield works in the same way? And obviously other car manufacturers have sort of played with this idea of the windshield providing you with a heads-up display. But what if they took that to like its logical extent and said, it's not only going to give you, you know, like, oh, here's the speed limit. Uh, it's going to give you like collision warnings and it's going to highlight potholes for you and all this other stuff. There's just so much stuff that could be done but hasn't been done because people are so tied into the way things work now. And they're convinced that they can get away with offering people the lowest common denominator of product and still charge them the same amount for it. So they don't have to. They've not been forced to innovate by anybody. And Tesla's starting to do that. And there's certain people starting to feel the heat from them. But can you imagine how the industry would be changed if Apple kind of threw their hat in the ring and said, we're thinking hard about this and this is the way things work now? I mean, look at the damn phones, you know? Like everybody was happy with the way phones were working. And then Apple's like, no, this is the way it should work. And everybody's like, oh... Okay, yeah, that's the way things work now, you know. So I think there's cool potential there for everyone to end up benefiting, regardless of whether they own an Apple car or not. And I think those yeah. are the coolest things, you know. I, that's the I think things. I think the thing that gets overlooked about from the tech industry is like inside the valley. The perspective that I think is is missed is the degree to which Apple can. In, with the the stature that they have now, the way that they can influence the culture as a whole, and just as my, where I'm going with this is the way that they've just got people talking about watches. Period. Outside, you know, the tech world, and in the tech world, they would the argument would be, well, we've been, ha you know. It, Apple Watch is just the newest smartwatch. We've had Pebble, and there's mm -hmm. Android Wear, and Samsung has made, you know, the a whole bunch of watches, you know, in the last two or three years. Um, and none of those ever, ever exited the, you have to be a nerd to even know about them. Nobody, mm -hmm. and whether, regardless of how many people are, uh, have already bought an Apple Watch, it's out there and people, like when you wear, when I wear my Apple Watch, people say, is that an Apple Watch? Like, mm -hmm. and they just are aware that it exists. Like, to me, that sort of awareness could really, you know, Apple can influence the car industry in the same way. You know, that the people will be aware of it in a way that they're not aware of, you know, like Google self-driving cars and stuff like that. Yeah, I think so, too. I think that there's an opportunity there for them to sort of lay down a bar that people have to cross right and have to rise above in order to be relevant and that's that's just, the sort of thing with the phones i just <laughs> wouldn't it be funny if they came out with a car then you had to have an iphone <laughs> yeah like uh oh yeah it, it works without your iphone uh but only for 20 miles 
it doesn't it, it, <laughs> no gps <laughs> nothing i don't right, know maybe right. maybe it doesn't even start up without your iphone i don't know oh or maybe God. it does you know like the only way you can start it is through uh uh t- you know touch id with your watch or phone uh let me take one last break here and thank our uh last sponsor of the day uh or of the episode at least uh and it is our good friends at MailRoute, M-A-I-L-R-O-U-T-E, MailRoute. You know who should be handling your email? Email nerds who do nothing but email. These guys created the first cloud-based email filtering solution, and then they sold it to Microsoft. Now they're back with the most innovative and effective spam and virus filtering available. Uh, virus filtering, I mean, I guess that's a big Windows thing. I mean, for me as a Mac user, I don't really worry about getting viruses in my email. Uh, I do worry about spam. And what MailRoute does is they, it gives you a world without spam, viruses, or bounced emails. Uh, imagine opening up your email hosted on your domain and seeing only the legitimate email that you want to see and receive. MailRoute can make this a daily reality. Um, no matter if you have your own domain, that's the thing you need. Regardless of who hosts it, MailRoute can help. What you do is you just set up your DNS so that your mail goes to MailRoute first, and then MailRoute, you send, give them the DNS for your actual email server. So outside world, the email comes through MailRoute. MailRoute takes out all the crap and forwards on what's good to your email server. So your email server, the server that's actually hosting your email, doesn't change at all. You just change the DNS, and they have all sorts of stuff to help you through doing that. Um, You just have the email go through them first, then it goes to your server. You don't even have to change your server, and all of a sudden, all the junk is gone. And it is super high quality. I know tons and tons of people out there uh, who use Gmail only because of their spam filtering. I think MailRoutes is as good or better than Gmail. I do have some Gmail, that email that goes through Gmail. Also have email that goes through MailRoute. It just, I, honestly, if anything, I think MailRoute is better. I think less spam goes through MailRoute um, than Gmail. It's certainly competitive, really, really is. And therefore, if you want, you know, for all the good reasons that you might want to host your own email on your own domain, uh, it is a tremendous, tremendous service. I, I cannot say how well this works. Um, for filtering out the junk and it's got cool features where uh you know here's the big thing yes you want to filter out all the junk but in case something is falsely flagged how do you find out well you can set it up if you want to send you like a report like a weekly report like here's a bunch of the maybes here's you know here's a bunch of emails that we thought were spam we held them for you if you want to go and correct one of these just you know here's where you go and click click this okay this we'll remember that this is not spam Really, really easy. Easy to set up. It's very reliable. It's used by large universities, large corporations. They've got huge clients. Uh, I just can't say enough about it. It's really, really good. Uh, it's got a good user interface, simple and effective. If if you're just a user, it's great. It just works. You'll forget that it's there because you just don't see it. You know, That's how good email should work. You just forget it. If you're an email admin or IT pro, They've built all sorts of tools with you in mind. They even have an API so you can program your own stuff uh, to work against it. 
Uh, they support LDAP, Active Directory, TLS, mailbagging, outbound relay, everything you want from the people handling your email. Uh, and this is all they do. All they do is just host, or not host email, but but deal with email and uh, make it as trouble-free as possible. So to remove spam from your life for good, go to mailroute.net slash TTS, the talk show slash TTS, and they'll know you came from the show, and you'll get a free trial. And because you use that code, slash TTS, you will get 10% off for the lifetime of your account. So if you use them for the next 20 years, you'll save 10% every time the bill comes up by using that code when you sign up. So go to mailroute.net slash TTS and uh, sign up today. Cannot say enough good things about them. Great, great service. I, I would almost say... Uh, indispensable if you're hosting your own email. Really great stuff. Uh, what else is in the news? I'm trying to think. There was the thing, you know, it, you must know about this. Uh, and I guess I guess it didn't come out. It just came out yesterday with Mark Gurman where uh, your former colleague, Daryl uh, Etherington, is now working for Apple PR in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I, I obviously I know he doesn't work for me anymore. Um, <laughs> I was about to say, <laughs> yeah, I, I was about to say, I would hope, I would hope Matthew that, you know, half the story. <laughs> uh, yes. Daryl is not no longer in our employee. Um, he doesn't work for me anymore, but I, out of respect for him, didn't pry into what exactly he's doing. Although my assumption is yes, comms in Canada. Uh, yeah, it's a you know it's a gentleman's agreement when it's somebody who was your former colleague, but it's yeah, interesting. And, you I, know, it doesn't make any sense for me to pry anymore because it it's a company we cover, and the less that I learn about it through friend channels, the more I can report on it through my normal reporting channels. You know, it's just it's one of those things. It's a careful line you have to tread, especially when somebody crosses the line in between uh, PR, you know, or comms and. Uh, and a journalistic entity, and you know, there's some people that are that get irritated with that. Especially, there's some hardline journalists that are really irritated by it. I'm on my third career, and I'm I'm very very reluctant to denigrate anybody, to look down on anybody for trying to chase what makes them happy, you know, and find something that they they want to be happy doing. And um, you know, hey, I wish them the best. Yeah, I you know, while you're doing the job on one of these sides, like you know, if you're like us right now and you're in some kind of media where we're covering Apple for our readership, uh, and somebody else is working for Apple on their PR staff, it's you know, obviously it is two opposing sides where one side is you know, by definition, their job is to push the company's line. And our job is to make sure that we're writing what's true and useful for our readership. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's any reason to have hard feelings about somebody who goes from one side to the other. I mean, it's, it's sort of a natural transition. The thing yeah. is, though, yeah. here's the thing, though, the thing is that the where it's disproportionate, where it's not balanced is Apple has a lot of money, and the <laughs> yes, I'm aware. I I know uh, it's very hard to compete with. That. And and the media, you know, in general, is not going through a good time, and and some publications, you know, are going through a terrible time. And even <laughs> I think this might be why you laugh is even publications that are thriving or being successful, 
uh, don't have the sort of budgets for salaries that maybe Apple does. <laughs> right. I think that's fair. That's a fair assumption to make. Yes. Um, you know, TechCrunch is doing okay, but uh, yeah, we definitely don't have $160 billion in the bank if we need to, you know, juice some salaries here and there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's more interesting in light of like kind of the overall, and I, I've had, <clears throat> excuse me, pardon me. I had a chat with my colleague, Drew Olinoff, who he, we hired, we've hired him back. He used to work at TechCrunch and um, I liked working with Drew. I used to work with him at the next web as well. But Drew has spent some time in comms. He, he was actually in, um, with startups managing community and doing comms before he was ever a writer and then kind of went back to it for a while, worked at Yahoo, um, for a while and handled comms over there. Um, was recently at a couple startups and stuff like that, but just really had a desire to write again. And I'm really happy about that because I was able to, to work with him again because he's actually, he's got a great mind and thinks about this stuff great. And because of his work there, he's got good perspective. So I honestly think that that experience on both sides of the line makes you more sa a more savvy reporter, makes you understand what companies are saying when they say certain things, when they're BSing you, you know, it's your your BS detector is is better, I think, right. in general. But I don't think that it's it's one of those things that it's impossible to be honest or or be good at your job if you're if there's ever a possibility of you crossing that line back and forth. Because I think that assumes people are automatons, yeah, and that there's no editorial direction and no editor going like, hey, should we be pushing harder on this? You know, and it's just, you know, nobody's paying attention or whatever. Yeah. So I think that there's lots of implications there if you're, if you're saying that's, you know, this can never happen. Yeah, that you're part of a tribe and that you've somehow mm -hmm. betrayed your tribe by switching to the other side. I mean, I think that's nonsense. I mean, and it starts mm -hmm. really at the top. I mean, Steve Dowling uh, got to Apple from, I believe, directly, like he was the CNBC um, Silicon Valley correspondent. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So he went right from, you know, reporting on companies like Apple for TV to, you know, being, you know, now he's the head of PR. Uh, right. And I, you know, can't help but think that maybe there's a little, uh, even though a lot of the hires that they've had have not been for PR. Um, and supposedly, you know, the, as reported by Mark Gurman, that's what Etherington's doing or, or you know, um, but it wouldn't surprise me that under Dowling's leadership that they might go more in that direction just because that's how he got there. Well, remember, too, that uh, if you look at Mark's report, he reported later on that um, Josh Lowenson from, was from The Verge, who was also on the Apple beat at CNET. He also was hired hmm. um, right around the same time Daryl was hired, it looks like, um, from the report. And I don't know anything about that, but yeah. it, it seems like you could be right in that there's a streak there of that. Um, I. Obviously, as somebody in this industry who works with app, other Apple reporters, you know, and, and pays attention to the company, it's been really obvious to me that they've been snapping up Apple reporters, as I'm sure you know. I mean, they hired like Chris Breen and yep. um, they hired um, Anon and Brian from Anon Tech. Yep. And, and not all of those, as you mentioned, have been for comms positions. Right. Supposedly. But it seems like uh, they have been raping and pillaging the, oh, excuse me, yeah. pillaging the, yeah. the, you know, I don't. Uh, this, I don't want to lighten that term by using it, but you know, in the Viking sense, they've been right. pillaging the media village. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's it's evident that that's what they're doing. Whether that's like Steve is like, hey, these guys are these are the people we need to get, or what? I don't know. You know. Yeah, and I know um, John Seth from Macworld, and this was also in German's story yesterday. He's not working in PR; he's working at Apple University. Um, mm. 
And another one that wasn't mentioned and isn't really a media hire, but it sort of is. It was, and it, I feel like he's just, you know, like so many people when they go to Apple, he's outside their walls. He's gone very quiet. Is Michael Gartenberg? Um, oh right, who yeah, that's right. Who, I, you know, was an analyst and. Uh, was the rare gem of an Apple analyst who was really smart and insightful and wrote very clearly in normal, you know, straightforward language. And so, yeah, of course that's why they hired him because he was the good one, <laughs> right? Right, right. But my thing is they're shooting themselves in the damn foot because there's not going to be anybody left outside who understands their business and can be moderated about the way that they report on it. Yeah, Garten, like it's, Gartenberg, it's just going crazy. Gartenberg doesn't work in PR. He is in Schiller's group. But doing what, I, I don't know. So he's you know somewhere in product marketing. Oh, okay, um, gotcha. Which is, yeah, I mean, it makes, it makes sense that they would bring those people on that understand their business right. and have a, an insight, right, right, that they can tap into internally. It just seems funny to me because it's, <laughs> they're, like if you hire all of the reporters that are able to write about you without being histrionic or stupid, then you're, all you're left with <laughs> is a bunch of, <laughs> of like flag-waving crazies, right. you know, who are happy to tromp all over you. And whatever reason, like, you know, you could argue that Apple's closed-mouth attitudes have maybe, lent, you know, exacerbated that problem. Yeah. But whatever the case may be, they, you know, there's you're definitely removing pieces from the board that could be not advocates because that's not their job and hopefully it's not their job, but could report on it with intelligence and with moderation. And when they have criticisms, they are, they are based in a contextual understanding of the way the company actually works, yeah. not the way that you make it work through intellectual dishonesty, right. you know, when you're reporting on it. Yeah. And so I think that there's, there's something, be, I don't know, you know, some people are like, Hey, they're smart. They need to go there. And then Mike, you know, on the other side, I, th I say, well, if they're smart and you snap them all up, then all that's left is the dummies. But I don't know. Uh, I'm not calling myself a dummy yeah. or you a dummy, but, you know, but, eventually. Yeah, <laughs> eventually it's all that's left. I know another good one who left, not for Apple, though, was uh, Ellis Hamburger, who left The Verge for Snapchat. I, I mm -hmm. guess he's, I don't even know what he's doing. I guess he's running PR for them or something. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's I don't know exactly what he's doing. But yeah, he did leave. I mean. He obviously kind of saw the possibilities and and understood what they were kind of after a little sooner than a lot of people. I think um, I was I was nodding along with a lot of stuff he was writing about them, and they probably were too. So I think that's probably why they snapped him up. But yeah, it's definitely a trend, a wider trend. Yeah, definitely. And it's you know, and again, like you said, and you're you know in the hot seat for it, running TechCrunch is that it's it, it's. It's one thing for you to be, you know, if you're pursuing a, a, someone who you see as a good writer, uh, it's one thing when you're competing against other publications with, you know, roughly in the same business, and another when you're competing against uh, startups like Snapchat that have raised millions and millions of dollars, or a company like Apple that, while we're sitting here talking about it, has made tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> They've made more money than we'll ever make in our entire lives. Right. <laughs> while we've been talking on this episode. Right. Exactly. It is hard. It is hard. And, you know, when we look for, I mean, obviously every publication has their own sort of desires and wants, and, and you'll, you know, we'll have different desires and wants for each position that we hire for. But we... We generally hire reporters for a very specific reason, and that's like they're outspoken. They they understand what they what they think. 
they understand their spaces extremely well and they want to express them vociferously in a way that says this is what i think and that's does that's not the way a lot of other publications work you know they hide behind a lot of editorial layers everything is leached out by the time you read it and so you don't know really whether this is the way this what the writer's thought process was at right. all you know and because we work that way it actually lends itself towards people like Apple or a, a startup or a VC firm or somebody like that understanding the way that person's brain works more than yeah. say the Wall Street Journal, right? Right. right. And I, so I think we are we are a higher target for poaching in that regard, which you know people get angry about it and they they do they do talk to us and get get a little bit they throw a lot of shade. Let's put it that way because people that work at TechCrunch maybe go to work at a company after they work here. For me, like I said, I don't begrudge anybody the, the ability to try something new. And then the second aspect of it is I view it as a compliment because they don't go work for other media organizations. Right. Because I think that they find the work here has a lot of freedom. They have a lot of flexibility. They have space to, to create what they want to create. And then they go. So if they go somewhere else, it's like walking back into a cage and shutting the door behind you. Yeah. You know. I, so I, I mean yeah. this sincerely, not just because you know you're hearing I'm, I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but TechCrunch is and always has been. You know, right from when it started, is Mike Arrington's site, just you know his own, just personal site. But it's always been a site where the bylines mattered in terms of the writer has a voice. You know, and I see. You know, like I noticed, I noticed that Drew came back to TechCrunch because I I know his name because he's got a voice. And, you know, I all of a sudden I started seeing by Drew Olinoff again on TechCrunch. And, you know, I, I but I noticed that there are a lot of sites where the bylines don't matter, not in terms of credit, but where you, you know, you just don't you, you don't there is no voice from the writer. There's no personality in it. It's just like a, a right. generic, well, watered down house style. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And I think that there there is plenty of room for that, especially when it comes to sensitive reporting. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to have a writer come out with a, a bombastic take on something that's very sensitive, like a a founder who has who commits suicide, for instance, which right. we've had happen very, very sadly a couple of times over the past couple of years. And so that is not a situation where you're going to do that. But by and large, the large majority of tech coverage is very is, is one of two things. It's either incredibly over the top and and intellectually dishonest, where somebody <laughs> creates uh, Gawker, an, Gawker yesterday published yeah. an obituary for iTunes. <laughs> oh, good. oh, good, good, excellent. Um, you know, and I like—I don't begrudge anybody their angle, but I just find it really hard to then take them seriously, right? Right. And so then there's either that, or it is the very dry, distant. I'm going to hide behind several layers of editorial, so you don't know whether or not I actually believe this thing. And my goal is always if i'm going to hire a writer and if i'm going to tell a writer like what we do and how i want them to write the the core of it is do you believe what you're about to publish and if you don't then go back to the drawing board rethink it you know it's not it's not about what it looks like or what it feels like or what you know people the way people take it you know if you report on something you say a certain thing and they trash you that's fine it really doesn't matter all that matters is do you believe it because in the end, that's why you can go home and sleep at night and you can wake up tomorrow and we're both happy and we smile when we see each other at work. And we're not all depressed and, and de in our cups because 
we're publishing things we don't believe, you know, or, or publishing things we don't believe in. And I think that's like the, the biggest thing. Right. And that's hard. Or, it's tough, especially when all this money's at play, right. you know? Well, what about, so what about just powers. the simple metric of publishing, writing stuff that you wouldn't want to read? Right. That to right. me is exactly. where, that's, that to me is where you're, if you're, well, and uh, you know, if you're a writer, a creator, if you're creating things that you yourself would not want to consume, that's, that to me is when you're miserable. I mean, that, that yeah, is, big warning sign. That's death to me. And, and definitely a warning sign. Um, right. That should about wraps it up. Should we talk about the only other thing I could think to talk about would be um, the two other things I had on my list were uh, Apple.com redesign, which I don't know that I have a lot to say about. And the other thing is uh, the Apple Music stuff that came out yesterday, Eddie Q and uh, what's his name, did an interview with USA Today. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Eovine. Eovine. Uh, yeah. So they said, you know, really do the Apple Music first. So then the news is that they have 11 million subscribers, but everybody is still in the, the three month free period. So there's no, you know, no metrics yet on how many people are actually paying. Um, but that seems like a good start. Uh, you know, and, and there was an acknowledgement of, yes, there's some bugs and it's not working great for everybody and we're on it. Mm-hmm. What is, I, what I'm, what I can't make up my mind about, and I, it's just I just haven't used a lot. I, I don't, I don't know. I'm old, grumpy old man, and I don't listen to a lot of music. <laughs> I've I've never really listened to. A, I don't listen to music while I work. That's here's the big thing. I can't write or read while I listen to music. Or I, I shouldn't say I can't, but I find it to be distracting. I like to write and read in silence. Um, <laughs> I like to write in silence. I can listen. I can listen to music while I read, but. Yeah, if I'm writing, I, I'm not like, a, oh, I'm going to put headphones on and listen to, you know, music. Unless, and this is like a very precise thing to digress. I know we're talking about iTunes, but I just find this, since you brought it up, every once in a while, I get this idea to write a story and literally the entire story is already done before I start writing it. Mm. And in that case, I play the music to get me through actually putting it on the page because it's boring at that point. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Actually I do. writing I it, do. The, the writing part is boring because you're like, ugh, I got to put all these words down so other people know, <laughs> understand what I'm saying, you know, and that then I'll put on some techno and I'll, you know, blast through it. But yeah, but if I'm trying to formulate ideas, I do find it distracting. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's a funny way to put it, though. There are, it, it, in broad sense, I do find that when I write, there's that's two types of stories. There's the one that I already have it, and it does seem like it's just drudgery. Not drudgery, but work. It, it feels like work mm-hmm. to get it out. And then there's the kind where I don't know where I'm going, and it it's actually fun to write it, even though it actually is more work, because I actually have to go back and and change it, because the the course of writing it is how I formulate the final idea. Exactly. You teach yourself what you meant by writing. So I, I, and then at the, at the end of it, you're like, oh, I meant this, then I got to go back and, and readjust I, all this. I, so a, a, a quick spoiler. It's an article I'm writing for Daring Fireball. It isn't out yet. It might be a race against time, whether it's out before this episode of the podcast <laughs> is out. But I'm just writing a post that's just, here's my guessing on what the new iPhone lineup will look like next month. And I started it by trying to get to where uh, Moltz and I last week on the show were both thinking maybe they would do like a four-inch iPhone 6C, sort of Mm -hmm. like the internals of the iPod Touches that just came out and the A8 and the four-inch size. And that was what I started writing the article about. And as I wrote the article, I came to the conclusion that that's 
that's not going to happen. <laughs> and that, the, yeah, that, I love that though. I know I mean, that's the great thing. The and, discovery is is fun. But I actually had to then go back to the beginning and like rewrite almost everything because like I started by trying to make the argument that this is why I think they might do this. And as I wrote the article, it's like by forcing myself to make sentences out of it, it's like, oh, you know what? That's not going to happen. There, you know what? There'd be yeah. there'd be leaks of the components by now, and there are no leaks, so <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, well, that's called being intellectually honest, right? Right. Because, like, but the, it's fun. The flip side of that is you prove beyond. You try to prove and you try to stretch the facts and truth of what you know to be true right. to fit a narrative that you had created before you even started. You know? right. And so there's there's that too. So yeah. It's fun though. Um, so anyway, I the, you know my daily life. I don't listen to a lot of music. I I work uh, an awful lot. If by you know dicking around on the web and linking to things, you can call it work. And when I'm doing that, I'm not listening to music. I'm constantly waiting for somebody to make me go back and dig ditches. Yeah. I mean, really, every day I'm like, okay, well, when's the time to go back to work? <laughs> <laughs> so as long as I feel that way, I think we're okay. As long as we feel that way. Uh, Anyhow, go ahead. Wh- wh- and then when I'm listening to stuff because I'm bored and I want something to listen to, it's almost always podcasts. Um, and so I don't listen to a lot of music. And so I, you know, I've played around with Apple Music and it it works for me, but like I don't use it enough to have run into these bugs that people have run into. So I just don't know. I, I don't feel like I'm in a position to judge. This is where I'm getting at. Is, is this a, a sort of rough 1.0 and there's some kinks to be worked out, but it's, you know, they're on track and yes, that's just bugs. It's a 1.0. They shipped when they shipped and they'll fix it. Or is this a disaster and they've got a permanent mess on their hands? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I see people espousing both opinions. I mean, like I just joked, like the the Gizmodo published a, a obituary for iTunes yesterday. Mm-hmm. So I I tend to think that's hyperbole, but I don't know that I've used it enough to form an opinion on it. I mean, I think everybody who's used it for any period of time understands that iTunes is not the the most well written piece of software anymore. And that's no real one person's fault necessarily, although you could probably find somebody in the chain somewhere who you could quote unquote blame. But I think that it's been asked to do so many different things by now that it's impossible for it to execute on any of them with any real sense of, of like competency. You know, it just does stuff. It doesn't really do stuff well. And I think that that is part of what we're running up against here when they're smashing Apple Music into iTunes, uh, and which is the argument for separating it, right? right? And having an Apple Music app or whatever the case may be, um, which I think honestly would lead to more complexity. So I'm not hugely fond, but you could easily see a music app and a videos app, right? right. And, and the videos app c- contains your video library, just like it does in iOS. And the music app contained you know, radio and your music and all that stuff. Um, and then the stores were then attached to each of them. You could even look at the Apple.com redesign as a sort of indicator as to the way they think about it. And right now, your music collection is separate from the store. But with Apple Music, it doesn't have to be, right? It literally is. It could be one one unit. And you could you could be listening to a song and add it to your collection, which is totally possible with Apple Music right now. So there's just lots of indicators that a standalone app could really work well and yeah. could mesh better than it currently does, where you switch back and forth. All I know is, is that like, my movie library is is pretty big, and iTunes handles it incredibly poorly, and a- Apple TV <laughs> handles it even worse. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm I, I, have ni- I have 954 movies. Wait, how many? And 
954. Wow. Are they and they are all bought through iTunes or Oh, hell no. No. Good god. No. Yeah, no. Uh, some of them, but you know, I I think a good portion of them um maybe 20% are purchased but from iTunes, but a large majority of them are ripped right. from Blu-rays, DVDs, you know, that, uh, other kinds of things. So they're not the most amazing quality, but a lot of times, I mean, they're good enough for me to watch every once in a great while when I want to watch it. But it's just like I digitized my collection. That's all I did. I, and I you figured out what keep them on a Mac that's on your home network. And iTunes supposedly can <laughs> through your right. iTunes through your iCloud account you can uh, see them from your Apple TV. Exactly, but the on the Apple TV when you have 954 movies, it literally the list scrolls for an eternity, right? Like it's just a scrollable list. There's no genre breakdowns. The metadata is there, but there's no genre breakdowns. There's no way to even look at them in cover form mm. it's literally just an endlessly scrolling list of names it's the worst possible interface for a large movie library yeah it's and it's not good it just sucks we're we're yeah. i i've out of laziness i mean i i'd still buy blu-rays for movies that i truly love or expect to love uh mm -hmm. you know criterion collection i've got all kubrick stuff on blu-ray and stuff like that but right. uh for the most part if it's just regular crap we just buy and we're going to buy it. We buy the iTunes version. So we've got, uh, uh, I've figured it. It's like, holy cow, that's a lot of money as we've, you know, but we've been doing it for years. We've got a, like a little over 300 movies that we've bought from iTunes. Um, mm -hmm. And on, and that's the ones we've, that's, you know, not rips. These aren't like on a Mac. These are the ones we bought from iTunes, but on Apple TV, when you, this is the you know current Apple TV, uh, when you go to all movies, it's like, I don't know, 10 seconds before the list comes up. And before anything comes up. So it's like you almost have to, like, it's easy to get to the one you just, the most recent two or three, because they're up there at the top in the little uh, shortcut section. But if you want to look at a movie that you bought years ago, it's, yeah, it really stinks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. If, you, if it's something you bought recently, I mean, the cycle we go through with my daughter is, you know, we'll, she'll see him, well, I'll leave. you know, why don't you, try this, you know, try this movie. And she'll hate it, right? She absolutely detests it the first time we watch it. And then she'll start asking me to watch it again, and she'll watch it over and over <laughs> and over again until we watch something else. So, like, I recently introduced her to James and the Giant Peach, and at first she was totally disinterested, you know, completely, no thanks. But then now she watches it, like, once or twice a day, right? And the same thing with Iron Giant, um, where, you know, those are the movies she alternates between right now. When previously to that, it was, like, Monsters, Inc., and, you know, so on and so forth, right? There'll be a thing, that is she's interested in. So when she wants to watch a movie that day, you know, well, okay, what do you want to watch? You know, and she'll be like, oh, you know, giant, right? Well, those are right at the top. But if it's anything else, it is a drill down job to get to the rest of it. So like regardless of what, what your use case is, whether it's just your kid watched movie or, you know, you're a serious movie collector, I don't think either people are really being serviced well at this point, you know? And uh, I think that there needs to be a severe revamp there on the Apple TV. But I think that part of that is in iTunes as well. Because iTunes, at, at the moment, it's not all that effective either. It's either a list or a list of covers that does not scroll well. Yeah. <laughs> that scrolls really, really poorly. Yeah. And so, it takes a long time yeah. to load. I, it's, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I have a very strong feeling that there will be a, a new answer to that problem in a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there has to be. I don't. I don't really. I'm in the same boat as you as far as as Apple Music goes. Like, I don't have 
a really comprehensive list of of my gripes or anything like that because I use it really casually. You know, I have a, a music library, but most of my music library is classic rock because that's when I was buying a lot of music on CDs and, and ripped them. I was buying a lot of classic rock. And my musical tastes have changed significantly. I think the last three albums I bought were like Mumford & Sons, Brandon Flowers' new album, and the Kung Fury soundtrack. So like I'm all over the map now. But I very rarely go through my music library and play stuff anymore. I generally pop on RDO and then just listen to the popular stuff, right? Like what's new, what's interesting. So I can discover new people and go like, oh, I like, you know, Wale or I like, you know, uh, Matt and Kim or I like whatever these new, you know, Walter Sobchak or some some new artist that I, I am pretty excited about now. And so that discovery aspect of things is serviced fine for me by clicking on the radio tab and just, you know, letting it play or, or going to the for new tab and just clicking on something. So for me, I'm pretty easy. So I'm not the right person to be all critical about it, you know, because I'm an I'm an easy pleaser. Um, <laughs> that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of you, Matthew. Easy pleaser. <laughs> In this one small, right. <laughs> narrow niche, I am. Yeah. Uh, what do you What do you think about the new Apple.com? Then we can wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's good. I mean, I I don't like it. Like you, I don't have a whole lot to say about it. I mean, I think it is. It's going to be a, a nice statement for anybody that has a separate store to get over it and yeah. to, to integrate their exploration, curation, and store all into one. Like, there's no reason to have this whole like showroom mentality. I think you put that put it that way in your yeah, your, uh, yeah. But I think that's I think that's accurate. I think that the reason though it uh, it was it was more of an engineering issue than a decision that that's the way they should do it right it was mm. it just sort of evolved that way and that they had this convoluted web objects system that they wrote in house for the store that did a lot of cool things and couldn't be easily replaced but it also had a lot of problems and so to me the most interesting thing we could talk about and and a lot of people have asked so i feel like if we don't uh, it's the one thing i know we <laughs> almost have to talk about is are they still going to take the store down <laughs> right. when they have like a press event um, and long story short, the, the deal is, is that that started because technically they had to take the store down for hours to make certain, there were certain types of changes that had involved taking the entire store down for hours. And it, it's part of it was the way that there are different stores around the world, you know, for different currencies mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And part of it was just the way that it was made. Uh, and that explains why there are times, you know, there's almost like a bat signal, like the Apple store is down. Like if it's down the morning of a, of WWDC's keynote or if, new products, right. Or if it's down next September, you know, I don't know what date it's the consensus guess for when the, you know, event's going to be, you know, I don't know, looks looking at my calendar. I'm thinking maybe September 14th. Or something, you know, September 14th, September 15th, you know, but if the press events go out or invites go out, you know, the week before and the store goes down that morning, well, yeah, everybody knows that's. But there were times, mm -hmm. you know, for years where like on a random Wednesday, the Apple store goes down for an hour and people get excited and, you know, what's going on? And then it comes back up and it was nothing. <laughs> uh, right. So right. my understanding is that those days are over. Like the new engineering that's gone on here is they're not going to have to take the store down um for 
just just because they have to. But my guess is they'll still do something like that because it, it evolved into a way to make people excited. You know, it builds anticipation. And quite frankly, if they're announcing new iPhones this morning, they don't want you to buy mm. an old iPhone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because they know you're going to send it. Right. You know, you're going to be mad and they're going to have to cancel your order and, and send it back anyway. Yeah. So maybe they just turn off the buy button. Right. right? I mean, I think that there, <laughs> I asked about this and got no comment, but you know, about the whole, like, well, will the website come down now? Um, and got no comment from them. But on the, if you look at the way that the switch went, they did it in like 40 countries, so like 40 different stores. And they did it seamlessly. Like I actually saw somebody was even browsing the site and it changed on them as they clicked from one section to another. So whether that translates in forward into them being able to do whatever they want without having to take everything down, I don't know. But it's an interesting indicator, you know, mm-hmm. a leading indicator of, of maybe the way it works differently now than it did before. And one of the reasons that they did all that engineering, you know, behind the scenes. I mean, I'd, I'd be really surprised if it's still random web objects, although it may. I don't think you know? so. And it seems based on my Twitter, you know, it's hard to tell from the outside. But it's clearly not web objects that's directly talking to the browser. There's some kind of Apache front end now. And now that could be some kind of load balancer or something in front of web objects. But it doesn't seem like it. And I said that it felt faster, but I don't know. Maybe it's that, you know, what did I call it? The new and shiny placebo effect. But a bunch of other people on Twitter said, no, it's not just you. It's definitely faster. So that makes me think it's not web objects anymore. And if it is web objects, it's well mm-hmm. well hidden behind a, a a faster, mm-hmm. much better looking. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's the news of the week. Anything else that you wanted to talk about? Have I lost you? I've probably lost you. Okay. Clear again. Skype is the worst. You know what's funny? And I, it's like, I got, you know, I don't pay for it. I guess I, maybe if I could, they'd go away. But you, you launch Skype now and it gives you like a list of things you can do. And my list of suggested things to do was one upgrade to windows 10 and two take a depression test <laughs> that is, is that the- <laughs> that's that's literally what it says in the main skype window when i launched skype one I think that's- <laughs> things to do today that's upgrade fantastic them. and i can't help but think that they're related <laughs> right exactly it must be related uh, it's either that or using skype is related to depression yeah you know that <laughs> Anyway, anyway, uh, you've been extraordinarily gracious with your time, and that was a great conversation. Matthew Panzerino, people can read your work uh, at TechCrunch.com, where you are. Your title is, uh, are you editor-in-chief? Are you, what's your title? Yeah, editor-in-chief. Which is uh, well-deserved, and you're doing a a very good job there. Uh, And on Twitter, they can see your very fine tweets at at Panzer, P-A-N-Z. E-R. I'll tell you, when I was trying to look you up on Skype, I typed in Panzer, and it didn't work, <laughs> and I was very upset. Yeah, I, when I introduce, I get introduced to people, people introduce me as Panzer now, which is, I just let it ride. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a good name to own. It sounds cool. Anyway, I thank you for your time, and cool. uh, talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Have a good one.